Welcome and good morning. Um, thank you for coming to the fifth annual Public Defender Juvenile Justice Summit. Um, this year's summit is entitled Less Talk, More Action, Solutions for Safe Schools and Safe Communities. Um, I'd like to introduce myself. I am Patty Lee, the Managing Attorney of the Public Defender's Office, Juvenile Division, and I would like to introduce my co-MC, Maurice Moray. Greetings, greetings, and welcome. Good morning. My name is Maurice Murray. I'm the Youth Program Coordinator for Be Magic. Be Magic convenes, coordinates, and networks organizations in Bayview. And one of the inter interesting things to note is that Be Magic, the collaborative, came about in part from the Juvenile Justice Summit meetings and, and get-togethers. So we must know that this is important for stakeholders to move with action items to make things happen as it did in the past. So. Right now, we're the community convener in Bayview, and just to let you know, it works. I have a few housekeeping matters. Um, I want everybody to take notice of the emergency exits. They're to the left of me and to the right of me, and obviously out through this back door. Um, we are asking that everybody please sit down if you can, because um, you would be blocking the emergency exits. Uh, the men's room is on the first floor. Uh, it's closed on this floor. Ladies' room is on this floor. And we are asking that everybody, including our panelists, please remember, turn off your Blackberries, pagers, and phones. And um, at this time, I'm very honored and proud to introduce my boss and the public defender of San Francisco, Jeff Adachi. Thank you very much, and welcome to the fifth annual Public Defenders Juvenile Justice Summit. You know, I was just thinking this morning, five years, and maybe it was too idealistic, but it's my hope one day that we won't need a Juvenile Justice Summit, because we truly will have justice for youth. Um, but until that time, we will continue uh, to meet and talk and create action. And that's really the theme of today's summit, creating an action plan that will result in the changes that we're talking about today and the innovations that we're talking about today. Uh, over the past five years, we've taken up a variety of subjects. As uh, Maurice mentioned, uh, the uh, MAGIC programs, which are a collaboration of community-based organizations and juvenile justice agencies was a result of the first Juvenile Justice Summit five years ago. We've also taken up uh, the deplorable conditions at the California Youth Authority, which resulted in a moratorium in sending our youth from San Francisco to the California Youth Authority. And I'm proud to say that, for example, over the last year, none of our youth have been sent to the California Youth Authority. But we have to remember the fight still continues. They are still incarcerating youth at the California Youth Authority at a cost of nearly $230,000 per youth. I mean, you can send a youth to three years of you know, law school at uh, Stanford or, or Yale for that. And beyond that, every year we have looked to issues of critical importance, not only here locally, but throughout the nation. Uh, two years ago, we looked at the condition 
of uh, undocumented youth in the juvenile justice system and how these youth, uh, particularly those from Honduras uh, and uh, other uh, countries where there was a hostile relationship, um, were uh, being uh, deported and sent back, often without uh, parental support. Uh, so this year, we focus on the problems of guns and violence in our schools, both to and from school and at schools. And we raise this not as an incendiary issue or not as a divisive issue or not as, you know, as the headlines often read and uh, give the misleading impression that somehow youth themselves are to blame uh, for, uh, uh, you know, these, these incidents that we, we often hear about involving guns and gun violence, but to recognize that as a society, uh, we have done little to uh, decrease the proliferation of guns on our streets, that we have done little to control. It's just like the war on drugs. Um, you know, it seems almost strange uh, to, to use those words since it's been such a failure. Um, but it's the same thing that we're seeing with guns. And while I think that many of us, particularly those of you who work uh, with youth um, and work uh, in the communities uh, which are plagued by violence and uh, warfare, would agree that what we're seeing on uh, our streets is a reflection of what we're seeing in many poverty-stricken communities uh, across the country, that there is an obligation of those uh, who uh, lead our schools, who lead public transportation, to find better and more effective ways to work with youth, and that we cannot simply ignore the realities uh, of the street, of the communities, of the families, and many of the uh, issues uh, that our young people uh, are, are struggling with uh, each and every day. Uh, we're going to be presenting uh, some very, I think, helpful and important information. Uh, so we start with the facts about what we're seeing in San Francisco uh, with youth, uh, with violence, with guns. And we're focusing not only on individuals who are alleged uh, to have perpetrated violence, but also those who are victimized. And, you know, we use those words uh, as uh, being, you know, two polarized entities, but the reality is, is that many perpetrators or so-called perpetrators are victims themselves. One of the uh, uh, surveys that we did of young people at the Youth Guidance Center, uh, they reported that 77% of the young people uh, detained at the Youth Guidance Center uh, believed that uh, a gun was necessary for their own self-protection. And that says a lot about our society, that a young person would feel compelled to carry a gun, no matter, you know, how, and, and you know, to many people, they would think of that as, as outrageous. You know, there was an incident reported uh, by Joe Tucker in yesterday's Chronicle about a first grader who had a gun. Uh, and brought it to school. And we have to question, how does that happen? What is the thinking that, and again, you're talking about a first grader. And 
what can we do as youth workers, as educators, as parents, uh, as teachers, to help ensure uh, that our youth don't grow up in a world where that type of behavior becomes the norm. We have an incredible, incredible array of speakers uh, here today. And by speakers, I mean individuals who have come here, like you, to share their experiences. But I want to emphasize that this is about community participation. And what that means, community participation, is that all of you, as experts in what you do, in the work that you've dedicated your lives to, working with our young people, also need to have a voice. And so we will have uh, questions, uh, um, but more importantly, solutions is what we're asking for. Not speeches, but solutions. We're also uh, uh, broadcasting this uh, about 12 times over the next six months. And so those of you in our viewing audience who would like to participate in the action plan uh, can simply uh, send an email to us Go to our website at www.sfpublicdefender.org. In each of your packets, there's a material packets which are also available online, you will see a form where you can submit your action items and ideas. And I promise you that we will uh, look at every action item that's suggested because we're not going to be able to cover everyone's ideas here and incorporate uh, these into uh, the plan, which we will then publish on our website. So again, the website is www.sfpublicdefender.org. I also want to uh, emphasize that one thing we've learned is that it's important and critical, most important and critical, to hear from our youth. And so you will, you will hear from youth panelists um, on every panel. And their input is, is valuable and critical uh, to this process. Because one thing that we've learned, this is not about adults telling young people what to do or how to act. This is about, you know, I'm old, <laughs> but older people listening to young people about what their vision is, about what they want to create, and, uh, you know, us providing the guidance and support that they need uh, to achieve their dreams. And that's why I know we are all here today. A summit like this would not be possible with the help and support of so many. And I would just like to acknowledge um, uh, uh, a number of individuals who, who made this possible. Ilona Sullivan, who uh, works uh, at the Public Defender's Office, Larry Roberts, Leah Villegas, Carol Davis, Yvette Robles, Kathy Asada, and Angela Alyoung, who have arranged for our lunch. All of the volunteers uh, who are working the event today, uh, Michael Freeman and his staff from SFGovTV, who helped promote this event and uh, are televising it today. Our city librarian, Luis Herrera, and his staff uh, here at the library in the Cret Auditorium. Our sponsors, uh, Kecker and Van Ness, Varela, Braun, and Martel, our Guedes, Cashman, and Headley, uh, Patty Lee and her husband, uh, uh, Gil Graham, uh, Clarence and Dyer, Mark Zilversmith and David Beagleisen. I'd also like to give a special thanks to George Anderson from Anderson Anderson Anger Management Consulting. He, he contacted me and agreed to send uh, Dr. Wentz here, who is an anger management expert, 
Um, if you've ever, ever seen the, the movie with Jack Nicholson, Anger Management, George was the consultant on that movie, and he, he, uh, he uh, is an expert in uh, conflict mediation. So I want to thank George as, as well. Um, I am so very honored to introduce our uh, keynote speaker uh, this morning. Dr. Francisco Ravalis comes from humble beginnings. And I think that's a theme that you'll see in so many of our speakers today. Superintendent Carlos Garcia, uh, even uh, MT, uh, MTA Director Nat Ford, um, all were people who were self-made, are self-made. Uh, Dr. Ravellis was born in El Paso, Texas, in an area known as El Segundo Barrio. He labored as a young migrant worker in the ag agriculture fields in California. He also served as a Division I high school principal, a school counselor uh, with uh, credentials in both biology and chemistry. Well, how did he get from biology and chemistry to working with youth? Today, he's a senior faculty member at California State University, and he's dedicated his entire career to helping young people get out of survival mode and into an empowerment mode. He believes that when young people are made to feel successful, they are better able to take a stand and to feel empowered. A very simple principle, but he's expressed that in so many ways. He's a researcher. He's conducted extensive field research in areas relating to youth. He co-authored a nationally recognized uh, book called Each Mind is a World with Carlos Santana, Rita Moreno, and Edward James Olmos. He's also a former senior research associate at the Center for Delinquency and Crime Policy Research. He is also an author, and he wrote a illustrated life management book for young Latino men called Hombre a Hombre. And he uh, has also taken his talent to film. He understands the power of media, and he just finished a film uh, about young Latino men entitled Latino Youth from Survival to Success, and he's working on two other films about youth and gangs. Um, he's a father, and his uh, uh, you know, two uh, children, I understand, are, are here. They're not children, they're adults now, uh, uh, Daniel and uh, Alma, and um, his daughter-in-law and uh, Alma's uh, partner, life partner, uh, Megan Burns, who also happens to be a deputy public defender in our office and suggested that we uh, contact uh, Dr. Rebellis. So uh, we're so happy to have you here. Uh, thank you so much, and we look forward to hearing your address. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I, I got to share this with you. I also know how to drive tractor. How's that? <laughs> Never forget where you come from. There's a saying in the Latino culture that says, cultura cura. I mean, culture cures. All culture cures. It's almost like coming back to our madre, to our mom. I want to first and foremost, with tremendous respect to Mr. Jeff Adachi, thank you so much for the opportunity. Ms. Patty Lee, excellent. Gracias also. And also certainly to all the community leaders 
Superintendent Garcia, it was a pleasure meeting you just a few moments ago. And certainly to all the other people that are here and the students, can I see the hands of the students that are here? We have high school students here. There you go. Excellent. And you know what I like about that, mijos? Mijos is an endearing term in the Latino culture. It means my children. Look where you're sitting. You're sitting in the front, huh? That's right. I did a presentation for over 2,000 students here not too long ago. 2,000 students, and there were 2,500 chairs. Where do you think they sat? It breaks my heart. They sat in the back. And so being growing up in the hood, in the barrio, what I did is I had all the ushers remove the first 500 chairs. <laughs> and we started getting closer. And I said, how does it feel to be in the front now, mijos? And what I shared with them was this, is that if you see yourself a second best, how do you think people are going to treat you? Because when you sit in the back, who sits there with you? Your little brothers, your sisters, your madres, your fathers, your cultura sits in the back. Now, growing up in Texas, I can't tell you how many times I made, they were making fun of me. And so I'm going to share some concepts with you, some ideas, maybe some provocative statements. But first and foremost, it's such a pleasure and a treat to be here. Thank you again, Mr. Adachi. There's another saying in Latino culture. And by the way, also, my children here, thank you. Okay. Actually, they make me very nervous. How's that? <laughs> I want to be up front. Okay. Um, there's a saying in the Latino culture that says that los hombres deben ser feos, fuertes y formales. Now, let me tell you what that means. It means that men should be ugly, strong, and formal. Well, I'm getting older. How's that? I'm still strong. I think I can still do 150 bar dips. I can do 20 pull-ups. Come from being a field worker. And also, and certainly, I come here in a very formal, respectful way. Okay, this is a very beautiful gathering. Can I have you do one thing for me, pretty please? How's that? I know some of you may or may not know each other. Could you turn to the person next to you? I don't want this to be a Southwest Airline flight. Sorry about that. Southwest is a good airline. Don't get me wrong. But so you know, turn to the person. Take about 10 seconds to introduce yourself. How's that? We're in familia here, ladies and gentlemen. Familia. I know some of you, I saw some telephone numbers being traded here. It is what it is. No, but, but seriously, gentlemen, I do want to feel wherever I go, I feel like I want to be part of familia. For me, life is too short, ladies and gentlemen. Familia in the global context. If I speak in, in Spanish, I'm speaking hopefully in all languages also. And if someone next to you does not understand, please translate for them. We are part of the bigger family here, ladies and gentlemen. How many of you saw that movie, A Few Good Men? Remember that movie? There was a pivotal scene there, ladies and gentlemen, where Tom Cruise asked Jack Nicholson, he says, I want the truth. Do you remember the response? That's right, Tom. You can't handle the truth. Now, why am I speaking about that? Because in the work that I do, many times we have to think strategically, not just tactically. It's not only about law enforcement, an important part. But certainly it's got to be more than that, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Adachi, you spoke about the youth authority. I've done work there before, Chad lockdown facility. What troubles me is that right now we are approaching, at least with the Latino community, young men, that there are more men, Latino men, that are incarcerated than attend the CSU community college system. Think about that. In a sense, as one author said to me, he says, you know what, we become the keepers of the cages. Very serious statistics, huh? As an educator, I came out on a, on a, on a radio show here not too long ago, and the interviewer kept insisting on equating gang membership with being a member of Al-Qaeda. 
And I submit to you that what that does is dehumanizes students who are struggling. I am not trying to be politically correct, but I've spoken to so many of these students. When he shared that with me, I said, you know what, I refuse to go there because it perpetuates that paradigm. And if we think of individuals such as this, as terrorists, do you see how easy it is to, to reduce, dehumanize them? Our paradigm changes, ladies and gentlemen. What I'd like to do is this, for the next few minutes, is pull the lens back, to use that metaphor, and to really start to look at it while you're here today, at what's feeding this monster, ladies and gentlemen, and to think proactively, to think strategically. And so for the next few minutes, if anything, if you leave here today, you will leave with my accent. How's that? <laughs> but you will leave with something, ladies and gentlemen. I say it very respectfully here. One last thing. I do speak to children an awful lot. I have a doctorate. You have a doctorate? It's, it's beautiful. It's great. Education for me has mean, it meant more freedom for me. But I also am under no illusion, ladies and gentlemen. I have a doctorate, but I also know having a doctorate does not always confer wisdom. And there's a difference. When I speak to parents, when I speak to my father who passed away, when people were making fun of me the way I spoke, the color of my hair. I still remember my mom coming home one day and she says, Mira lo que te compré en especial. What I bought you on special. You know what that means, huh? And we were poor. I mean, we had beans in the morning, beans at breakfast, and beans at lunch, and beans at dinner, and we had bean pudding. You remember that, huh, Mr. Garcia? He's going like this, huh? <laughs> I stopped counting them after a while. And we even had American cuisine. We put beans in pan bimbo, rainbow bread. How's that? You remember that, huh, Superintendent Garcia? But I speak to children. I listen to them. And that's why, Mr. Adacha, I'm so, it's so beautiful to hear you say that, to listen to the children also. Because we, we, we do so many things. I go to so many meetings, and yet I feel more fulfilled when I'm with students. And probably because of this, one more saying, how's that? It says, the only people who speak the truth sometimes are children and people who've had too much to drink, huh? <laughs> That's called wisdom. <laughs> you think about it. I'm going to share one more thing with you later on. I will speak briefly in the time that I have on the concept of at-riskness. If I asked you right now, ladies and gentlemen, how many of you, and this is respectfully and self-selecting, how many of you would have considered growing up that you considered yourself at-risk? Could you raise your hands? And there was probably a lot of pain with that, huh? In the book that I wrote, I interviewed over 60 role models throughout the nation. And guess what? All of them were at risk from astronauts, legislators, Mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villarragosa. We were all considered ourselves at risk. And yet, it has made us who we were, huh? If you get close to me, you see a lot of scars. I may have a doctorate, but I also got scars running up the length of my body where I've been. I share with people I have a lot of wisdom, and then they get offended until I tell them wisdom comes from making mistakes. Then they smile. Because I've made a lot of mistakes also, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? I'm going to speak to you about collaboration, the challenge of collaboration. I'm going to talk about the role of expectations and respect or respect. And I will speak on the value of hope. Because when you're in an average situation, ladies and gentlemen, hope means so much. And it is a global, it's a global concept. In the research that I do on resilience with children, I'm going to touch on hope. Okay? It's a very abstract term, huh? But it's very important. And I'm also going to touch on faith, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. When I talk about the concept of at-riskness, could I have all of you here, if you bear with me, here, could you all close your eyes for a second here? Just close your eyes. Okay. All right, go ahead and open them. I'm not going to take you through a visualization. I charge for that. How's that? <laughs> but seriously, though, 
Some of you did not close your eyes. When I said close your eyes, you went like this. You looked at the other people closing their eyes. And when I ask students why they do this, it's because I don't trust anybody around me, man. That's the kind of world we live in sometimes, ladies and gentlemen. I've done work on the South Pacific Islands, Palau. And there are islands there when something happens, the children run to the nearest adult. Do you see that happening here at the mall? If I'm not dressed like this, ladies and gentlemen, I'm dressed the way I am at home, you probably won't want to get close to me, huh? That guy must be a gangster. When I speak about at-riskness, ladies and gentlemen, I asked a gentleman, a school administrator from Southern California, with tremendous respect, I said to him, what do you consider, what makes a student at-risk? And I say this because when we talk about gang membership, many times we end up treating the symptoms, huh, ladies and gentlemen? It's the symptoms we're treating. That's just an expression of other forms of oppression. Because it's also teen pregnancy, drug abuse. I asked this individual, I says, what do you consider a student, when a student is at risk, what do you, what's going on? He says, well, they speak a different language than in the home. There's a disconnect. They don't have as much money. Feria, how's that? And I knew he had money because he picked up the tab every time we went to eat at a fancy restaurant. Nothing wrong with that. He drove a nice car. Nothing wrong with that. He had an English accent. Nothing wrong with that. I happen to have a hood accent, huh? And I'm proud of it. But people distinguish between accents also, ladies and gentlemen. I've talked to students about that. I've spoken to students about that. And I says, are you at risk? He goes, no. With your jewelry? I like jewelry too. I says, well, what if I took you with your jewelry, your Escalade, nice car, your fed in your pocket, and I drop you right in the middle, midnight, in a, in a really high crime area at the park, would you be at risk? Well, yeah, I would. The point I'm trying to make, ladies and gentlemen, is sometimes we attribute at-riskness to personal characteristics, when really it's the environment that we create for those individuals that places an individual at risk. We adjust. Growing up, I manipulated the environment, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking straight up. I've spoken to so many individuals now. To survive, I grew up on the streets. The work I did at Chad, the lockdown facility, you know what the number one book is there? The number one book that's popular, that's checked out from the library, what book do you think it is? I hear the Bible, beautiful. What is it? I've heard that one too, so you're right. You know what it is? It's called The Art of Seduction. And you know what the first section is? It's called Choose a Victim. What has happened is this. As an educator, someone who works with, with gang units, as a witness, etc., we've literally created sometimes oxymorons, ladies and gentlemen. We've created young people who think it's good to be bad, who think it's smart to be dumb. We teach them that passing the standards is sufficient. No, mijos, that's just survival. That's not success. There's a difference. Three words they told me in the lockdown facility. And I also speak at Stanford, Berkeley, etc. But I listen to the students that are there. You know what three words are very powerful? One student told me, again, this is from their world, at riskness. He says, Ravellos, you know what the three most powerful words to us are? I says, what are they, mijo? I tend to think in terms of love, faith. You know what they said? Hate. Jealousy and revenge. He said, those are powerful words for us. You see, I'm listening to that. We're listening to that. As an educator, I submit to you that we need to go beyond that. We need to think strategically. I still remember, and i got to share this with you, I went to a debutante ball. You know what a debutante ball is? Beautiful. Nothing wrong with that. Okay? 
And as I got in the elevator, the person was focused on my, part, my, my friend here, vice president of the university. And they were talking, and then she looked at me, and I was dressed in a suit like this, right? And when she looked at me with tremendous respeto, she jumped, and she looked at me, and she goes like this. What did she do? She grabbed their earrings, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? Because I, I don't know, she, I, she's never seen a Latino close up with a mustache, I guess. And my cilantro cologne, I don't know. I mean no disrespect to her, ladies and gentlemen. I mean no disrespect. But what I'm trying to say is it was her gut level reaction. And what I almost told her, I said, ma'am, today I choose not to rob you, man. <laughs> let, let me do this. I, I could go on and on and on. I've got so much I want to share with you, but I also definitely want to respect that tiempo that we have the time. Let me talk about expectations. And let me drop this with you. In the research that I've done, what kinds of teachers do you think tend to be assaulted by gang-associated youth? What behaviors were they exhibiting before they were assaulted? Some people say, confrontive, you're right. Some people say, intolerant, you're right. You know what it is? And I think this speaks to why in this conference it's about expectations. Teachers with low expectations tend to be assaulted the most. Because low expectations means you, have, you don't have respeto for someone. The work that I've done with gang-associated youth, it starts from a premise of respeto and high expectations. It's like James Calante. I expect something from you, you mijo. And it's because I respect you. Somebody said, Reveles, you're always angry, man. I said, no, it's the fire in me. I said, the day I stopped being angry with you, mijo, is the day I stopped caring for you. And it made a difference at the high school. Let me conclude with this. There's so many other topics I want to talk about. Collaboration. Let me just share this about collaboration. I did the best practices paper for the legislature, SB 1095, on students coming out of lockdown facilities, first-time offenders. We had programs throughout the state. They had money, funding, staffing, facilities, and yet they died on the vine. You know why? Because they couldn't collaborate. That's the elephant in the living room. They came from different paradigms, ladies and gentlemen. We all meant well but we came from different paradigms. Let me conclude with this. I talk about hope growing up, seeing some of the things that I saw. I learned a very important lesson, and that was this. Growing up on the streets, I knew, like the streets around here, selling newspapers in a border town. And I get there was a lot of extortion, ladies and gentlemen. I saw things that probably young people as a seven, eight-year-old shouldn't see. But I learned a very important lesson that I know is going to be emphasized here over and over and over. And that's this, that in order not to get beat up, how's that? And I'm speaking to you in simple terms, not simplistic. I'm speaking to you the way my padre talked to me. And he didn't have a doctorate. He was a philosopher because he got a doctorate in the fields. How's that? <laughs> you can tell I really value the elders, and that's very true of all cultures. Um, he taught me a lesson, ladies and gentlemen. And he said, you know, all the things that I put up with, he says, no se cure heridas que no tiene. Don't tend the wounds you don't have, huh? Have hope, mijo. Have hope. Because I remember coming home sometimes, and I said, my mom, she said, look what I bought you on special. And people were making fun of me. And you know what color the shirt was, ladies and gentlemen? It was a bright yellow shirt. I looked like a light bulb going to school. And they laughed at me. But again, the role of the elders is so important. And when I talked about hope, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to remember the works of Victor Franco, Man's Search for Meaning. Have you read that book? He looked at the, he was one of the survivors of the concentration camps, Auschwitz, Treblinka, Dachau. And he saw those individuals that came to those camps, those who died very quickly, and they seemed to be very fit. 
and yet they died. And yet there were other ones who you'd not, you would not think would survive, and yet they did. You know what the difference was? And I'm not trying to oversimplify. It's those that thought that this too will pass. It's called hope. So frequently when I work with students who are dealing with some heavy situations, I always talk about hope. And the best way to build hope, ladies and gentlemen, is to have a plan, huh? Have the students plan. When I talked about being on the streets, the best way not to get beat up also, you know what that is, ladies and gentlemen? Very operational. How's that? It's called have, bigger, have bigger cousins and brothers, huh? You know what that's called nowadays, ladies and gentlemen? It's called coalition building, huh? Let me conclude my remarks with this. And I'll conclude with a, a very brief story, if I could. I was flying back. I did a keynote at the NASA Space Administration. I'm telling you, growing up in the hood, in the barrio, going to NASA, you know, the little thing here, you got three speakers in the back, I mean, three big uh, panoramas behind you. I felt like a dictator. My people. <laughs> but I got, now I will end with this, ladies and gentlemen. I got on the airplane. I wasn't wearing this tie. And I, was, I was tired. And I got in. I won't say the name of the airline. Good airline. And I got in the window seat. No problem. A gentleman, African-American, got in on the next seat, and there was one chair between us. And I submit to you, here's what happened. People were getting on the plane, and they were bypassing us. They'd look and keep on going. Now, I knew something was up, because on the way back, they looked at the same chairs, and they kept on going, huh? And I looked at the gentleman and said, you know what? It is what it is, huh? Until a young boy came. And he sat between us. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, that gave me an awful lot of hope. It took him to teach us, the elders, the older people there, that you know what? Children have a renewing effect on us. They redeem us, don't they? And finally, to conclude, I had a great compliment the other day from a student. Most teachers that are here and students that are here with tremendous respect to the students and young people, you're the reason we're here, ladies and gentlemen, because you give us hope. And the compliment the student gave to me, he said, Dr. Ovellas, he said, you're pretty cool. It's nice, huh? But then he said to me, as a compliment, he says, do you want me to hook you up with my mom? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Adachi, thank you so much. Thank you very much.
my name is uh, Antoine Wright. I'm a senior at Stewart Hall High School, and I'm here to tell you that according to a 2008 survey, um, uh, 8,000 high school students, 74% felt that they were somewhat or very satisfied with high school safety. 22% said they were not. My name is Mitesh, and I'm also from Stuart Hall High School. And when youth at YGC were asked if they always felt safe on their way to school, only 43% said yes. Among these same kids, 17% said they, don't, they do not feel safe riding the bus. Oh, I see. Yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Daniel Godino and I uh, live in San Francisco. Uh, when youth at YGC were asked why people carry weapons, 77% said that it was for protection. Uh, hi, my name is Scott Yamada, and I live in Oakland. Uh, so 66% of youth surveyed at YGC believe that it's never okay to bring a gun to school. My name is Bianca. I'm a junior at Thurgood Marshall. When asked whether they believed if it was a good idea for a person to have a gun, 17% of you surveyed at YGC and said yes, and 40% said that it was sometimes okay. All right, um, 61% of the same 8,000 students surveyed said that lack of jobs is a more serious problem than fights at school. 58% also felt that violence on Muni was a serious problem. According to the Juvenile Justice Community Assessment and Referral Center, 1,147 juveniles were arrested in San Francisco between July 2007 and January 2008. Of these arrests, 122 happened at school. All right, can we please have a big round of applause from everybody for our young people? Thank you. All right. So glad to be here. My name is Yvette Mari Robles, and I'm the director of a program called Be Magic in Bayview Hunters Point, as well as the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. We are now going to move into our first panel, which is going to address violence at school. I am one of your moderators, as well as Jeff Adachi, and he is going to introduce our panelists. And we're going to go ahead and start. And thank you so much for being here. And if you're interested in seeing those statistics, uh, we will have the uh, PowerPoint presentation available on our website at www.sfpublicdefender.org along with other uh, materials uh, to make them available. I'm very excited to introduce uh, each of our uh, panelists. Uh, if we described uh, all their achievements and accomplishments and what they've done, we'd be here all day, so I'm going to be very brief. Uh, but we do have uh, the bios uh, of each panelist in your packet and also available online at the website. Our uh, first panelist is Bianca. Bianca, as she introduced herself, uh, is a, a junior at Thurgood, high, uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, High School. 
Uh, she's also a member of an organization called uh, United Players, which I know is in the house here. And uh, uh, we, we came to, to meet Bianca when she began interning at the Public Defender's Office uh, through our Youth Employment Program. Uh, so thank you, Bianca, for, for being part of our panel. <laughs> Carlos Garcia is the superintendent of the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, we're so lucky uh, to have uh, a superintendent of his caliber experience and compassion uh, here in San Francisco. He served as superintendent of the fifth largest and fastest growing school district uh, in the nation, and, and that is in Clark County, located in, in Las Vegas. He, as I mentioned earlier, was raised in uh, Los Angeles as a product of the Los Angeles public school uh, system. He worked as a principal at several schools, including Horace Mann here in San Francisco. And thank you very much, Superintendent, for making time to be here. Nathaniel Ford is the director of the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. He oversees over 4,800 employees. Prior to joining the Municipal Transportation Authority in 2006, Mr. Ford served as the general manager uh, for the Atlantic uh, Transportation Authority for five years. And if you want to know how he got his start, he started as a train conductor in the New York City uh, transit system. Let's give it up for Director Nathaniel Ford. Jim Gierke is a principal, uh, but not only a principal and an educator. He is someone who has designed and developed uh, innovative programs that were born out of a crisis when they had an incident at the school which threatened uh, student safety. Uh, for the work that he's done that he's going to talk about uh, today, he was recognized recently as the National uh, Principal uh, of the Year. And, um, you know, he is somebody who is on the ground and has worked to empower young people uh, at his school, and he took his school um, from a very difficult circumstances to be one of the most highest performing uh, schools, not only in this in this school district, uh, but uh, in, in the state. Uh, Jim Durkee. <laughs> Margaret Brodkin is the director, the director of the Department of <laughs> Children, Youth, and Families. And I emphasize that because it is one of the most critical agencies uh, in, in, in the city and county. And uh, Margaret um, was a former director of Coleman Advocates, which uh, was responsible for many of the reforms that occurred both in the juvenile justice system as well as uh, for children and families uh, here in San Francisco. And she served as director of that organization from 1978 in 2000, until 2004. She was a fiery advocate for the expansion of children's rights, including uh, the author and leader of a campaign that resulted in the Children's Fund, which provides uh, funding to over 220 programs and serves over, over 30,000 children and their families each year. Um, Margaret is a passionate, passionate advocate for young people, and now she is in a position uh, to make action happen. So she just came back from a, a, a trip around the country where she looked at model programs from 
uh, Harlem to Oregon, and we're very excited to have her here. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, Dr. Tom Wentz, he is an expert in anger management and substance abuse treatment and has worked with many youth uh, throughout his career. He came to me through um, George Anderson, who runs one of the largest anger management firms uh, in the country. They are located in Los Angeles, and they have taken the science of conflict mediation and anger management and made it uh, into a uh, accessible uh, discipline uh, for, for trainers, uh, people who are working with young people uh, throughout the state and throughout the country. Do you know that there's only, I think, now one state that mandates uh, anger management in the schools? And of all places, you'd never guess it was Texas. And it's, it's only been within the last year. And uh, Dr. Wentz is an advocate. Um, he's also a Vietnam veteran who saw many people struggle with substance abuse and anger management in, in the wake of that uh, uh, war and conflict and has a tremendous amount of experience. He has a doctorate in education and child st uh, study, a master's degree in special education working with children, and uh, now works uh, in his own consulting business as well as uh, with Anderson and Anderson, uh, Dr. Thomas Wentz. <laughs> Angela Chan um, has worked extensively with the San Francisco Unified School District as well as community-based organizations in the areas of uh, violence prevention as well as uh, reducing hate crimes. She understands that Often, uh, violence is simply a manifestation of conditions that we are pre-programmed to assume. We're seeing that now, this whole issue of race being played out in the presidential elections. Um, but when it comes down to its core, so much of it's based on misinformation and, quite frankly, uh, untruths uh, that we're told about one another. If we understood our common history, if we understood the proud uh, places that from which we, uh, we, we each come and respected each other's place, uh, much of the violence and conflict uh, could be avoided, and she understands that. She's done uh, a number of presentations around the, the city and around the state uh, in this area uh, and now works with the Asian Law Caucus, Angela Chan. <laughs> Officer Lois Perillo has worked uh, in the field of uh, youth safety uh, for almost her entire career. She's been on the police force in San Francisco here for 25 years, but she took a particular interest in working with youth and with schools. And she was a SRO, a school resource officer, uh, for seven years. And during that time, she worked uh, with, in middle schools um, throughout the district and in many areas where they were experiencing violence. And she has been an innovator in creating a collective um, uh, working relationships with, with teachers, with parents, with youth, with school administrators, and to try to find uh, a more effective way uh, to work with youth who are involved in violence. Uh, 
And I'd also like to uh, acknowledge uh, Captain Marsha Ash, who is here, who is the head of the Juvenile Division. And uh, uh, Captain Ash has, has done a tremendous amount of work. Uh, most recently, she worked on protocols that uh, uh, would require uh, police to seek alternatives before taking young people in custody at the Youth Guidance Center and has also created new protocols that police must follow to shield children uh, who are present during their parents' arrest uh, from trauma and from harm. Um, so uh, thank you very much to um, Officer uh, Perillo as well as Captain Nash. Okay. So I'm pretty much going to go over for everyone here the purpose of the panel discussion. And so our panel discussion is to identify and build upon existing solutions to address violence within the school context, which includes violence to school, from school, and obviously on the school site. So our collective goal then is to clearly articulate action items to move forward solutions. We ask that all questions be reserved towards the end. We're going to have a 15-minute Q&A session, so please feel free to jot down any questions you have. And those questions that we're not able to get to, we are interested in collecting them. So there will be opportunity to do so and do that. And we're also going to be collecting um, information from what the panelists speak on with respect to solutions as well as action items that they're going to take back and work work on. So our first topic is violence to and from school, and Jeff will be moderating this particular piece. Thank you. We wanted to start uh, the discussion today by talking about safety and getting to and from school, because that's really where it starts. And again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, many people do not feel safe in their own homes. Many people do not feel safe uh, walking to school or even on the bus. One of the uh, things that was mentioned in the survey is a large percentage of youth uh, fear uh, what may happen to them um, on public transportation. And I think that in many instances, the way a person feels and reacts is a reflection of what they experience every day. And so what role can uh, uh, transportation uh, play? Uh, in terms of safety. But, you know, before we get there, I'd, I'd like to actually start with, with Bianca because this is something that, that you've had to live with and experience. Can you explain to us the challenges that you and friends and others you know uh, experience in, in terms of just getting to school? Well, um, I know going to school, well, my school is in the Bay Area, and um, some of them might have problems Going, getting there on bus, some have to go alone. I know sometimes um, they face problems with other students because there's a lot of gangs, and you ask what part of the city you're from, and you face a lot of violence towards that. So I know that's a risk for a lot of youth. And if, if you're in a situation where you feel endangered or if you see somebody else who's being victimized, um, do students know what to do? Do they know what actions to take to protect themselves? I think some do and some don't. What, what have you done personally uh, when you felt in situations where it's been unsafe? Oh, I haven't felt anything like that because I don't take bus, so yeah. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. yeah. 
I wouldn't be able to answer that. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go to uh, uh, both the superintendent as, as well as director, uh, Nat Ford, and they, they have been very proactive in looking at ways in which uh, uh, safety to school um, can be improved. I know that Sulu Palega is here who also works on the program uh, with the Municipal Transportation Authority uh, that actually uh, places um, security officers on uh, public transportation, obviously not all public transportation, uh, but also works collaboratively with the school district. Um, Superintendent, can you, can you first talk about uh, your efforts and then perhaps we can have you joined by uh, Director Ford? Well, I think it's a joint effort. It's, you know, it's, it's always changing um, with Nate here and, and also the police chief. Uh, we have a pretty tight relationship with the school district in terms of when things happen, uh, we get on the phone and right away we're all talking about, well, what do we do? Uh, we've had to change uh, starting times and ending times for schools just so that they're not overlapping in different routes so that, you know, we don't get different turfs on the same, you know, bus. And so we've had to do that a couple times. We've had to look at, okay, um, rerouting uh, to make sure that where the stops are, uh, where kids have to, you know, stop to take another um, transit, uh, that those areas are safe. And sometimes we've, we've you know, worked directly, and, and they put police out there. They put different people to assure that, we, you know, we always find hot spots that just come up, and, and usually you think that you've solved one, and then a new one pops up. And so the best help for us is for students, parents, everybody in the community to alert all of us when those happen because it's, it's a constant change. Uh, we can't control all the different variables, and, and I think that the public, everyone can really help us with that because uh, we're not out there every day on, you know, she said she doesn't ride the, the, the Muni or isn't on transportation, but there are a lot of people that are, and, and there are a lot of adults on there, and, you know, we, we kind of like it when, you know, we don't see it as people complaining to us when adults or somebody calls and say, by the way, you know, I was on this bus or I was on this streetcar and this happened or, or this is going on on a regular basis because we can't fix stuff unless we, we know about it. And then we get on the phone right away, our folks, uh, with both the police and with transportation and with the Muni, and, and they're pretty open to that. And I think keeping ongoing uh, communication is, is, is a good effort. Plus, we, you know, we've worked on having a hotline where people could call, and I know they advertise it. Um, he could probably tell you more of that. But even in schools, we have a hotline that we put out that if you, if you, you know, if you're feeling threatened or whatever, we want people to call on it. That's something that's new this year. But, you know, we're doing a lot of different things, but to be honest with you, we've got to keep doing it. But there's, there's always better ideas to make it better. Thank you, uh, Superintendent Garcia. One of the uh, first actions that uh, we took in terms of uh, the MTA uh, upon your joining uh, the city uh, as our superintendent was to set up a meeting to specifically talk about the relationship between the MTA and transportation and the uh, school district. Uh, the idea being is that uh, we are entrusted with uh, thousands and thousands of, uh, of uh, students and we need to make sure you get there to school safely and get home safely and to all of your other events. 
Uh, it's additionally personal to me because uh, I have two children who are in the unified school district that uh, ride the system every day. Uh, and it's uh, important that they feel safe also. So uh, we do take this very seriously. Uh, back in 2001, well before I came to the MTA, uh, there was a program which was uh, started, the um, Muni Transit Assistance Program, the MTAP program, and we have uh, literally dozens of uh, individuals who are out there to work specifically with um, schools and work close with schools. Uh, they have uh, the individuals in this program focus primarily on middle schools and high schools, and uh, they have close relationships with the school security personnel as well as the school um, um, principals. The idea being that if we do get the information, we're then able to redeploy uh, these individuals to sort of head off any conflicts or any particular issues. Uh, one of the things that I've tried to do, at least in the past year's budget, was one, we increased the number of MTAP personnel. And in this particular year, while you're hearing about all of these uh, certain, you know, cuts as, as it relates to staffing, we've been able to protect that program and to make sure that we have not uh, reduced the number of personnel assigned to that. The MTA also has, uh, in addition to its responsibility with Muni, it also is responsible for parking and traffic. And in that unit is the school crossing guard program. And we have 135 school crossing guards. And similarly, those programs have been held intact in terms of the frontline staff that are responsible for school safety uh, as it relates to uh, students getting to and from school, be it whether they don't ride Muni, but uh, they walk to school, and so we want to make sure we, we protect everyone out there. Uh, the challenge that we are, are faced is clearly information and staffing and having an, uh, enough people, uh, as well as educa education. Uh, one of the programs that we've implemented is this education regarding electronic devices. It used to be just iPods, but now you add in all of these other devices, and they seem to be a target for certain cr criminal activity that uh, we're concerned about. Uh, in terms of uh, iPods and things of that nature. So we've also done a, uh, some work in terms of just educational processes to make sure that everyone knows, you know, while it's nice to have those devices, put it in your pocket, put it away so no one has uh, the urge to try and take it away from you and then thereby creating an incident. There's always a lot more that we can do. I'm here today uh, because I, I'm looking for some ideas that, uh, as to how we can do it even better. Uh, right now, we have the MTEP program. I think it works very well. Uh, there's, you know, not a day goes by that some of our people aren't reporting back how they stopped a fight or stopped an altercation. Uh, but uh, we could do even more. Uh, and also, I think there may be an opportunity to really look at our, uh, our bus operators. They do have a responsibility to drive the bus, but quite often uh, they are aware of issues that are brewing, and we get information from them time to time, and there may be an opportunity to step up their involvement as it relates to uh, particularly student safety and school safety. So uh, there's a great deal, a lot more work uh, we could do. Um, I think we're heading in the right direction. In this past six months, uh, there has not been, fortunately, uh, there has not been any incident involving a weapon on any of our vehicles amongst students. So we feel very, we feel like we're heading in the right direction and we are focusing on safety and security, not just for youth, but we have to look at it also from a homeland security standpoint. So we, you know, there, while it may not appear to be a great deal of uh, uh, work going on, there is a host of work as it relates to homeland security, the video cameras that are on all of our vehicles. All of our vehicles are outfitted with video cameras to help determine these types 
types of incidents and if something does happen we will make sure that we are able to identify the individuals who are participating and take the proper recourse so again working closely with superintendent garcia here it is front burner he wasn't here i think barely a week before we were sitting down with my top managers talking about issues related to students getting to and from school and how we could do a better job at it the superintendent mentioned a phone number to call if people had concerns relating to safety what do you have that number yeah i'll get that number and i'll be able to provide it to you i don't have it in my notes here so we can announce it at during the summit yes i actually know where we can get that information it's called the safe school line and it was just adopted this year and the uh and we have some yellow cards in the back on the table that have english on one side and either chinese vietnamese or spanish on the other and there's three ways to report an incident to the safe school line which goes to the district to handle so it's any incidences related to school either on the way to school to school or at school you can either go online to www.sfusd.edu and if you see on the left hand side there's a parent or a student tab click on either of those and it's going to take you to the safe school line and you can actually submit a complaint online the telephone number is again on the yellow card in the back or it's also online at that website and you can also email a complaint and this whole system was set up basically so that youth or parents but particularly youth can report complaints anonymously because what a network of service providers called the Asian Youth Advocacy Network what we found out is that youth particularly minority youth are less likely to report crimes and incidences because of the no snitching and because it is tends to be minority on minority violence and so having an anonymous reporting system like an online system like we've developed or an email system or a telephone where you don't have to leave your name will at least give the school some hints as to what's happening so that they can address it as soon as possible when it starts with someone taking something from someone or someone mugging at someone before it gets into a huge brawl. Thank you. Yeah, and if you'd like that number, 241-2141, 241-2141. I was going to say that was going to be one of our action items. Right. Can I put an idea on the table that I heard about in my travels recently, and it's a slightly different approach, a complement to this, but what parents and young people tell us is that they don't participate in a lot of after-school programs and other kinds of programs because they don't feel safe and they don't have the transportation. So what they're doing in Minneapolis, and yes, it's a different city, but we are, I talked to the mayor about this yesterday, and I piqued his interest, so I think it's a potential action item, and I'm real interested in what people think, is they have a fleet of of buses that go around every neighborhood and young people can register for the bus and then it's totally free and it stops at the Boys and Girls Club, the local park, the local library, the local CBO, a school and it goes like during the summer from morning until evening and I thought it was a really exciting idea. We do fund some van collaboratives in some neighborhoods that have been very successful getting young people around but really having a system in San Francisco that it brings it not only gets young people safely to places, but it really builds a sense of community, and we could design it specifically for San Francisco, and it could go around every neighborhood, like the Mission, the Bayview, the Viz Valley, but it could also go from neighborhood to neighborhood. So that's something I'm interested in looking at, because I think it would provide an alternative to young people, and I think we could do it for a very reasonable price, and people inform me, if you tell the mayor it's going to be a green bus, that maybe that would really peak 
keeping us interested. So I'm interested in what people think about this, and I'm thinking, like, is this something the Children's Fund should participate in funding and planning? Well, we can do a poll right now. We have a lot of uh, community <laughs> organizations here. How many of you believe that is a problem, that people get having transportation uh, to your services? Uh, All right. So I will take that as a 92 percent uh, <laughs> <laughs> approval. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like uh, to ask, thank you very much, Morgan. That's great. Um, we'll add that to the action items. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask Principal Durkee about uh, an experience that, uh, that he had at, at his school when a young person uh, saw another person uh, being victimized on the bus and actually a, a group of uh, young adults were stealing binders, I believe. Uh, school binders, and he was afraid that, that he was going to be victimized. And uh, I'd ask uh, Principal Durkee to talk about that, and I'm, I'm going to ask Lois uh, uh, Perillo, Officer Perillo, to also talk about how she works collaboratively with schools. Uh, Principal Durkee. Well, actually, I have two um, stories to relate. The first one what, took place at uh, Washington High School when I was there, and um, we had adopted a hotline many years ago before they were in vogue and <laughs> and um, this young man called the hotline and he left a message and gave details as to um, criminals who were uh, victimizing kids on the 38 bus line and he said that he left the message because the every day these these guys would get on the, at the same stop and they would steal shoes or jackets or backpacks from kids and then they get off at the next stop, but no one did anything about it. And he didn't do anything about it until the guy in the row in front of him had his shoes taken. And he said, oh, well, I might be next. So he used the hotline. And um, the police were able to put up a sting operation and they, they were able to catch these guys. And that worked really well. Um, the other story was more recent at Visitation Valley. We had some kids out on a field trip coming back, and somebody jumped on the bus on San Bruno Avenue and um, beat this boy up, and they um, jumped off the bus. And the other students um, at our school, have all, all our students have been um, taught what to do in case somebody hurt you on the bus or something's going on. So they, they had the bus number, they had the time, they had the description of what the people looked like, and uh, within two days these people were uh, arrested. So that worked very well. I think part of what we need to do is uh, teach our kids to be aware of their environments, and especially for middle school kids, they're not they're not as worldly as high school students, and they need to be really trained as to, you know, how to work and negotiate in their environment. Okay. I think that's a, that's, that's a great um, uh, bridge to Dr. Wentz because that is what you do is you teach people as well as young people on how to negotiate in an environment. Can, can you tell us what your advice would be and, and also what the science has shown uh, regarding what works and what doesn't? At this time, I, I was just introduced to Mr. Dierke here before the meeting and um, had the opportunity to see what he was doing at his middle school. 
and I was very impressed because my background has been in education since about 1972, and this whole movement for social-emotional learning in the schools is gathering a lot of attention and gathering a lot of momentum. And when George Anderson developed anger management, this was approximately 25, 30 years ago, and he saw a need in California, and his curriculum that he developed is the only one accepted by the courts as well as the prison system because of its effectiveness. And George expanded on that idea of anger management to include emotional intelligence. And the four components of emotional intelligence are developing empathy, creating compassion, working cooperatively, and what's the last one? Forgiveness. And in developing that, in order to understand what George developed, I have to say that I'm a little nervous. You have to excuse me. It's been a while. George is a 70-year-old black man who grew up in Mississippi in World War II and experienced a lot of things that hopefully most of us won't have to. He was diagnosed as retarded before special education. Later on in his career, he was one of six people with a non-medical degree that were invited to participate in the Harvard Medical School's training of psychiatrists. Okay. And so George has been in this business for close to 40-plus years, and he developed this anger management program to help people get along with themselves first and, secondly, get along with each other. Because the one thing that George believes and practices is that our emotions are the things, are the characteristics that unite us all. Religion hasn't been able to do that through history. Politics certainly hasn't been able to do that. But the one thing we all share in common are feelings and emotions. And this is the one area where we fail so badly as educators, counselors, therapists. I mean, one of the commonalities of my experience, both as an educator and as a counselor, is 10 years ago I was working with a group of Native American students. I'm from the Midwest originally, and I moved out here six years ago. And prior to that, however, I was the department, the counseling department for a Native American therapeutic school in North Dakota. And we had 264 students, grades 4 through 8. And 75% of our students were on special education IEPs. 90% of our students were already enrolled in the juvenile justice system. And 90% of our students were active in their addictions of drug and alcohol. And this is how our students came to us. And later on, I would show up and be a counselor at the Betty Ford Center's professional recovery program, dealing with impaired physicians, attorneys, and other professionals. And the one thing, the one commonality that the children at the therapeutic school 
and the professionals at the Betty Ford Center shared in common is they had no clue about feelings. They had no clue how to uh, be aware of their feelings or how to express them appropriately. So what Mr. Dierke has done with his school in moving toward an SEL program is absolutely uh, the thing that we educators, and like I said, I've been in education for almost 35 years, it's the one thing we've missed. It's the absolutely one thing we've missed to teach our children to recognize and be aware of their own feelings and recognize and work with other children who have similar feelings. We can teach them all the math in the world. We've got all the techniques to do that. But we don't have clue one how to teach our children how to feel and express it appropriately. And it's the same problem where I start in every group that I work with in inpatient or outpatient or any place else. How do you feel and how do you express that? So the SEL movement in this country is critical. Uh, there are two states now that uh, have mandated uh, uh, SEL, social-emotional learning. Uh, one is Illinois. In fact, they've laid out an entire track of, of uh, goals and objectives, learning objectives, of course, from the state level on down. The teachers have to uh, uh, be taught before they graduate and become certified. And Texas just recently passed the law that every middle school student and every high school student has to go through anger management, emotional intelligence training before they leave school. And what makes more sense to how to learn how to live with yourself and live with others at the same time? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask uh, Officer Perillo to uh, talk about the SRO program. And often, you know, people are intimidated by the police, by the police presence. How have you been able to work collaboratively with parents and students to gain trust? And how have you used community policing? Um, that term can mean many things to uh, to, to see a police officer as an ally, as a friend, uh, rather than um, perhaps uh, an authority figure who is, is, is simply uh, going to be a disciplinarian. Well, thank you. Uh, well, for me personally, and I think for my colleagues within the Youth Services Unit, those that work directly with the students at the schools, it's about relationship building, most definitely. And the only way you can do that is to be there and to listen. Uh, and that's, you know, if, if you're talking, you're not listening. So we've learned that piece. Uh, you know, I, I come with my colleagues, I stand with everyone talking about coordinating, communicating, collaborating. Those are all great, you know, trendy words to say, and they're very, very important, and we're, we're on board with all of that as well. But um, that can't be done unless you already have, as, as my colleague Dr. Wentz is saying, the, you know, the social and emotional uh, skills intact. So part of what the SRO program does do is it offers uh, six officers that are skilled in the GREAT program, and it's a social skills program that officers co-teach at the sixth grade level within middle schools. Currently, we're, we're doing that within nine middle schools as such. And um, it's supported by the federal government, 
you know so it is grant funded specifically for that and so far you know the funding stream is there and the district the school district has been extremely supportive of that as well and and that adds that adds to the other programs that they've got project impact and alert again all very important programs the other piece that that we're charged to do is is to help create a safer environment for the children at school so we as school resource officers we wear many hats one day we mediate the next day we're breaking a fight up the next time we might be citing a child for a particular offense as well we offer classes to parents to the PTA we have a wilderness component that many of you might be familiar with where we actually take children backpacking kayaking day hiking and the like and we do that in partnership directly with the school district the Boys and Girls Club and the YMCA and it's the connection is the important thing without the connection without the listening the relationship there is no trust and that's the thing that we all strive to build thank you did you want to add something Angela yes I did I actually had a couple action items in mind when I came to this panel and I think this is a good time to add to what officer Perlow and also other people in this panel have spoken about there's a lot of great programs in SFUSD to address violence and harassment however what I've noticed in trying to get involved in the school district is that these programs are sporadic there's a couple here at this school a couple at this school it's for maybe a year maybe two years and but there's nothing really across there maybe there's like one program like second step there's not that many programs that are across the board for all schools that are that we invest in long term so for example I was just looking at this the other day with some of the content specialists at SFUSD but if you look at the back of the packet we were given there's a chart with all the different programs in SFUSD and the chart is entitled violence prevention chart of available programs and resources directly impacting schools and you'll notice the most important part for me of that chart is the school-wide positive behavior system, which is basically a school-wide, what's been found to be the best way to prevent violence in schools is to have a school-wide program. There's all different kinds, but if that's to be school-wide, it has to be embedded in your curriculum, the way you teach social studies, the way you teach health, um, the way teachers interact with students, the different ways you use to um, uh, create uh, the right rules in class, and then how to deal with it when students do not break those rules of behavior um, and, and that's an entire school investment that has to be involved in this and there's a lot of different programs um, including tribes champs best uh, no assaultments is one method but if you notice it's not all the schools it's some schools and by some often this means usually sometimes one or two three or four maybe they had it for a year maybe they let go for the next year it's not a consistent um, thing across the school districts and, it, and it's frustrating and particularly at the middle and high school levels the elementary schools are a little better about having some sort of a program usually tribes or caring school communities which is an entire uh, positive school climate which is includes curriculum so what I would um, suggest or advocate for in terms of an action item is for the school district and CBOs and everyone who's invested um, in the, the in school violence 
violence and reducing it to help try to make these positive school climate type programs adopted more widely and to make sure that uh, that they're used uh, because if we're if we are very very concerned about reducing school violence and preventing it we need to change the way we even teach class change the way teachers deal with students misbehaving it's not as simple as expelling a student suspending a student or calling the police because our school district is 85% minority our juvenile hall is 96% minority you pick up the phone you call the police you expel the student that's another minority student out of the system out of the school system into the juvenile system so we need to take a more um, holistic method of dealing with this before we move on to the next subject thank you That's really the other part of what we need to talk about, because what happens to a young person, you know, when they are arrested or when they're suspended or expelled. But before we move on to our, our next area, I just wanted to ask um, uh, Director Brodkin if she could just briefly expand on the services well, I, that are. I just love what, what you just said, and I was going to say something similar, which is we have to take all these fragmented approaches and create a real system. And uh, I, there is a sort of growing movement uh, that is at the core of some of uh, ideas about education reform, and that is a community school. And what a community school is, is a full-service school where every school has a, a full range of services. No, the district can't do it alone, where schools open from morning until night, seven days a week, and where a school is a center of community and really owned as a place that, of, of, by the community. And I had the wonderful, and I think we can do that in San Francisco, in Great Britain, they said by the year 2010, they're going to have all community schools. It is what my colleague here, Jim Durkee, is actually doing, but in a very fragmented way. I think we need to adopt the philosophy, the policy, and really turn every school into a community school. I had this fabulous um, opportunity to visit the South Brooklyn Community High School. I walk in. It's for kids who have totally failed in every environment. They are overage undercredited. It's a new word I learned. And it is co-led by a CBO and the district. The CBO does the counseling, the after school, the vocational work, the leadership training, et cetera, et cetera. The district does the classroom teacher. Uh, the, the teachers got up and said they love it. They have somebody at their side all the time to help with all the needs of the student. And the principal and the CBO director got up up. They meet every morning together. They decide what's going to happen at that school. They got up and they were total partners in making this a community school. And then I'll just and then I'll be through for the morning. But I had the opportunity to go to another school at nine o'clock at night, where I thought it was going to be closed, and I thought it would be. I walk into this school in Upper Manhattan, a very unsafe neighborhood, and it is lit up like a Christmas tree. And I I came back thinking we've got to light up every school, but it changed the whole neighborhood, the whole feel of the place. When the school was, it was like this beacon of wonderfulness. And at 9 o'clock at night, it was just full of activity, of young people, of parents, of ESL classes, of arts, of everything. And I got so excited about what the potential could be. And it changed the neighborhood. It changed the young people. And if you want to talk about safety. So I think we can do it. We have all the elements in place. I'm sitting here with the superintendent of schools. I think we can make a joint commitment to this philosophy and start uh, you know, making it happen in San Francisco. So. Yeah. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> and he's done. You know, 
I really I completely agree with Margaret because, you know, unfortunately, when you look at this list, the reason why some schools have these programs and other schools don't is because those schools go out and hustle funds. You know, you know, and we're really blessed in San Francisco because Margaret's group, DCYF, is partners with us. We have, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of community based organizations that step up to help us. We have, you know, the city that helps us. We have Prop H that passed to help some of these things. But the reality, the bottom root of most of these issues is that our state doesn't fund anything here. You know, I mean, our problem, our frustration as a school district and all school districts is school districts are not opposed to doing what Texas has done. Okay, we would love to have social emotional learning communities at every one of our schools, but we don't even have enough money to have a basic classroom teacher in every classroom. I mean, that's the, you know, California is an outright disgrace. You know, how can we be the eighth richest economy? We're the eighth richest economy, and we rank 46 in the nation per pupil expenditure. And after the budget that Arnold Schwarzenegger, our governor, is proposing, we will be dead last. That means that Louisiana, Mississippi, every one of those will fund education better than the eighth richest economy in the world. You want to know what the real problem is? These are great programs. Every one of our children deserve these programs. But unfortunately, we aren't walking the talk in California. The reality is we talk a good line about caring about our kids, but we don't walk the talk. You know, this public, all the citizens, in, in not only in San Francisco, but in California, better start standing up for our kids. Because it's fashionable to say that we care and all kids could be successful. We're not funding it. That's just the line. Let's start getting behind and forcing the politicians in this state to say that the most important thing on this planet are our children. All right. Si se puede. I don't perceive. Okay, so that is actually an excellent segue. Um, what I'd like to do now, because we have approximately seven minutes, so I'm going to try to squeeze in two questions in seven minutes. But what I'd like to discuss is what we are actually working with right now. And so what we're working with is some schools incorporating community-based organizations as a mechanism to address issues that the school district, quite frankly, cannot because they don't have the capacity nor do they have the funding or the resources. And so with that being said, what are some of the barriers in working with community-based organizations? What are some of the issues that are preventing more community-based organizations to be able to work in an effective manner with our schools? And what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, refer to Bianca and ask her to maybe give us an example, because I know she's worked with an organization called United Players, and that has been um, a very good experience for her. So for her to talk about a successful you know, working with a program at a community-based organization. And then I'd like to ask other folks on the panel to speak on what some of the barriers are and what are some of the strengths. Bianca? Yeah, um, I've been with UP for a year and they provide a lot. Um, it's a violence prevention organization and they take you on many field trips to 
um, you know, fight for the power to stop the violence. And what I really liked about it is that not only did it help you do that, to fight for the power for the youth, but it also provided you with jobs. And um, I know it helped a lot of a lot of kids. And um, they come in, in a lot of schools. At my school, they come in every Wednesday. We have meetings, and we talk about many stuff. And um, But I think once a youth has a organization helping them out, when they're aware of all the stuff that we can do, it's really up to you. You are aware of, the youth is aware of some, like UP, they're aware of me with a lot of stuff. Now that I know that information, it's up to me if I want to stop the violence. It's up to you if you want to stop the violence in your, in your community and your hood for your people. <laughs> Principal Durkee. Yeah, I would like to, to uh, say one of the barriers that I think we need to work on is that we write a lot of grants at my school. We have 26 partners and so, without a grant writer. And so that means that uh, most of these grants are two or three years, and then they sunset. So you get going on something really great, and then it goes away. So we really need to work on, on longevity of, of programs when we do find things that we're working with that we can have some stabilizing activities. I would like to mention uh, two programs that really uh, are great in, in – um, one is the, the Roots program, and for those of you who don't know what that means, it's the uh, program that was developed um, to help the sons and daughters of incarcerated parents. And um, we started it at my school, and it's moved to Balboa and other schools, and that's a really great program uh, to help a lot of kids who are victims themselves of the system. And um, we have kids now who used to hate to come to school, and now they're there every day, and they're, they're getting what they need done and moving on. So that's a good program. And uh, secondly, the Beacon program, which uh, we have eight? Yes. We have eight Beacons around the, the city, and they are really wonderful, and they, they really uh, lead the way on helping us with all of our kids. And um, I commend the mayor and, and Margaret for, for helping us out with those because they're so great. <laughs> Superintendent Garcia? Yeah. Uh, also, I need to add the wellness centers at our high schools. They're just yeah. fabulous to have. I mean, another thing that we need to really build a lot more on is uh, restorative justice advocacy. I think that's something we're, you know, we're, we're now piloting. A, you know, one of our board main members, Jane Kim, really came on, and, and when I first met her, she started to talk about this, and I didn't know a lot about it, so she kind of educated me. And, and then we, we're starting to get more. We've gotten the principals together. Where they've made presentations. People are starting to really buy into it because that's a learning process in itself. Uh, it's not just, you know, punishing kids more. They're used to being punished. You know, my mama hits harder than that. You know, I mean, we get used to So we need to have systems in place that are view it a little bit differently, view it from the victim's point of view, and really and, and deal with it on an emotional level because that's something that, as the doctor said, that, that, that people can relate to. I think our biggest problem in, in trying to work things out is that 
the district doesn't have the capacity to address when all these groups come at it. I mean, it's not that we don't want to deal with them, but who, we don't have a grant writer in the school district. We don't have someone that interfaces. We've created those things. Margaret and all of us have been working. Tony Smith, our deputy suit. We've all been working towards creating those types of things. And the city and Margaret have been wonderful to help us to build our capacity to be able, because if you're a principal, what do you do if, you know, 100 different agencies come at you? I mean, you barely have time to do the job that you have to do at school. So we need to create some user-friendly vehicles so it's a win-win for all of us. And that's really what we've been working on this year. And I, and I think we're going to get there with our new strategic plan. We're going to tell all the community-based organizations, okay, here's our strategic plan. How does your organization, what you do, fit into the plan? Because it's got to be there to support what we're all about, our mission, improving student achievement, equity and access, and accountability. That's really what we're about. Now, how does that fit in? And I'm proud to say that we've, we've, we've had lots of meetings, but, but we're getting there. And I'm really excited at working with Margaret and, and our folks because, yeah, you know, our bureaucracy was never created to interface with these types of issues. It's a lot of work. But you know what? I always tell people, if you want the convenience business, then stay the heck out of this business because this is inconvenient. And our systems, both city and, and, and district-wide, have to learn how to play in the sandbox, have to learn how to model what we want our city to become. And that's what we're working on. All right. We'll take one. Um, yes. Yeah, actually, I, I just want to piggyback on the superintendent talking about RJ, restorative justice. Uh, this is a, a commercial and also potentially an action item. I, I think we need to truly fund uh, peer court, youth court. Yeah. They have stopped. They have stopped their, um, their services a few weeks ago because they do not have the money to start up again next year. And for those of you who, who may not know, and I know many of you are familiar with it, it is a peer-driven, you know, adult-mentored place where children can come and be, in a sense, tried by a jury of their peers. The kids are trained specifically. They listen to these cases. And then these kids meet out more meaningful consequences than I can give them, than the school can give them. And this is a program that is valuable and that deserves our support, and I'm hoping that um, Margaret is... Uh, I have no more money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, I can make, I can make the pitch, and, and I, I know that it was agenda item at the Board of Ed as well, and I know that they were looking at that. It is something that is a resource for educators. They do not... There's certain things... This is something to share with you guys. Many of you don't know that I, as an officer, have more discretion when a youth commits a crime than people in the school district have. Okay. Take that in. There's certain so-called Columbine crimes that they, the school district, have to take certain action with. I can admonish, say, you understand what you've done is wrong, please don't do it again. I can divert to peer court. Sometimes the district is compelled to suspend and refer for expulsion. That's serious stuff. So having peer court, youth court as a tool is invaluable. Thank you. Um, I, I do want to say, and I didn't mean to be flip with you, um, this is a bad budget year and I've just been told all the things I should cut, but um, I am committed 
I, I want to cry when wellness centers and beacons and peer court and all the things that we fund through DCYF are held up as models. It's, it's wonderful. Um, and I am committed to the next round of the Children's Fund, even focusing more on school-based. But, but it has to be our coming together. And it's a two-way street. It's our understanding the scorecard, but it's the school district reaching out and embracing the community. And there really are two different cultures. And it really is going to take, uh, it takes resources, and I think the superintendent is absolutely correct. The underlying issue is resources, resources, resources. But even with the resources we do have, we could do better. I mean, we could be better partners. And just to end on a very mundane note, one of the core successes of a community school is having a single point of entry for the community at that school, someone whose job is called the resource coordinator and that's one of the first things that I am thinking about through the Children's Fund of funding because then it becomes a way to keep the principal from having to do the hard work of vetting every program but having a point in the school that really welcomes the community so that is one specific next step that I think we ought to think about thank you and then so due to time um, I'd like to take one last remark from Dr. Wentz I saw that you wanted to speak yeah. Well, in regards to the uh, funding for um, social-emotional learning, uh, when you look at kids who are expelled or suspended from school, it's my understanding the school loses $49 a day in uh, um, ADA. And that's money that can be kept in the school if there is, in fact, uh, an anger management, uh, emotional uh, uh, emotional intelligence training course available for that student. I mean, the uh, meta-analysis of 288,000 students across the country show that with SEL, not only do grades go up uh, in uh, the schools entirely, uh, but there's an increase in class harmony, there's an increase in self-esteem, and the entire community benefits. And that's from 288,000 students that were looked at uh, through a WT Grant uh, Foundation uh, meta-analysis of, 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 of that particular program. I mean, let's face it, uh, at the direction we're going now, socially, in this country, we don't have any choice but to, to initiate SEL in our schools. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Wentz, can you just say, state clearly what SEL is, again, for everybody? SEL is social emotional learning. It's about learning about oneself and how to uh, uh, recognize and work with other people and their feelings too. Thank you. So can we give all of our panelists a great round of applause for their participation? And we'll go ahead and move into question. We have Maurice with the mic and we have Iona with the mic, so please raise your hand and speak clearly and we ask that you ask questions. We got a question right here, hold on, here we go. Hi, my name is Joanne Abernathy and I want to address this to Margaret. I visit Atlanta for the U.S. Social Forum. Where are you? Oh, I'm right here, back here. Sorry. Oh, there you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> I visit Atlanta for the U.S. Social Forum for a whole week, and I experienced their community bus. It's the best thing that we can have in San Francisco if we can put it together. 
I mean, you know, it's nothing like bringing the communities together. But, you know, you got to start at home first. So if you want to put something together, you got to go to the communities and have them have the voices. Have the youth say it. Because I see a lot of youth, parents, taking them to school on their own because they're afraid that they ain't going to see their child again. So we got to remember that it, it starts in the communities. Like this meeting is really great, but you're preaching to the choir. Right. We need to be talking to some of these kids in the community and these parents and educating them. Right. You know, and so I just wanted to say that. And the other thing I wanted to say is that um, I done seen violence on the bus two weeks ago of a kid showing off a weapon two weeks ago in the Bayview. And, you know, people don't want to change and they don't want to be labeled because, you know, we're not protected. So you got to be careful on what you see. You can't say what you see at all times if you live in the community and you see something. So you got to understand that. People are not telling things because they're not protected. So we have to understand that we have to, the, what we could do about it is we could put police officers on the buses from the high crime area going to them schools, you know, so they can be on a bus and intimidate these kids because that's what they need. You know, when they see police officers, they run. So we need to put them on the buses so that they can get, they can feel comfortable going to school, not their parents taking them to school. That's right. I want to introduce Tracy Brown, who's sitting in the audience, who is the sort of uh, uh, coordinator of and the up, DC, DCYF Convener Project, which is, and it's going to be Tracy's job, by the way. We have organizers in 20 different communities trying to do exactly what you're talking about, and it's going to be Tracy's job to start, you know, the thinking about and planning for the bus pro program. So, um, Tracy at DCYF.org. Okay, so do we have any other questions? And folks, when we say questions, we really mean questions and not comments. <laughs> Hi, my name is Susan Stone, and I work with a number of um, youth offender um, and victim mediation uh, mediators. It's a free service. It's alive and well in San Mateo County. We'd love to bring it to San Francisco, to the schools, the communities. My question to the panelists, and I just want to acknowledge your commitment, your passion. This is so inspiring today to hear you. But my, my question to you is, is there a place in the schools, in this community, where we can stop the cycle of shame and blame and fear on both sides, both on the youth offender side and on the victim side, by having a mediation, a restorative justice program brought into the schools free to work on a case-by-case -case basis so that the children have a chance to talk to each other because so often these crimes, as we're, as we're saying, are among the youth under 18. Um, we would love to see that program happen. There are 22 people who work in this program in other counties, but we'd love to see it come to San Francisco, and it does not need to be funded at this point. Uh, we've already started that program. In fact, Thank Jim you. Durkee has it at his school. But we, you know, I think we have 11 schools, and it's growing. On. Our goal is to try to get it as much in every single school as possible. It's great. Angela? Um, yeah, I wanted to speak to that. We, as Officer Perla mentioned, and, and also as um, uh, Superintendent mentioned, that we do have San Francisco peer courts. However, again, the big problem is it's a great peer court. Um, I've see, sat through the sessions myself, and it's amazing to see the youth actually adjudicate and mediate uh, conflict amongst the youth. And it, it does seem like it has a much better impact in terms of reducing recidivism. Again, but the big problem is resources. And the second piece I wanted to just talk about really quickly is coordination. Once you do have the things like San 
San Francisco Peer Court. And then another resource, um, which is in the room, Community Response Network, CRN, doing the mediation work. The schools have to have, uh, and also the CBOs, of course, um, need to have a stronger partnership in respecting that mediation because otherwise it doesn't have an impact. So I'll give you a very quick example. Um, CRN went in and mediated a case involving a youth that ended up in juvenile hall for a fight. Um, the, the, the school, the, the court required that the, the um, bully stay away from the victim. So what CRN did was it got to the bottom of whatever the conflict was. It was between the victim and the bully's brother. CRN mediated that conflict, right, and, and kept in uh, accordance with the, with the court order to not have the bully and the victim talk with each other. However, the school district um, did not, did not uh, respect or did not uh, uh, um, follow that mediation and went on and expelled the student and said, we're expelling you because the bully and the victim were never mediated, right? And so it's a matter of coordinating the court's orders with the school district's expulsion suspension policies with the CBO's mediation. And, and keep in mind, the CBO only went into the school because the school principals and vice principal asked the CBO to go in there. So you have a problem of lack of coordination where you have some great programs, but they're not supported seamlessly by different city agencies, which include the court, the police department, juvenile probation, San Francisco School District, and various CBOs. They need to all work together so that when you do have a pilot program, you can scrape together the resources for it that's respected and used by all the agencies. Otherwise, students don't believe in these programs because what's the point of mediation when you, the school, you know, or the school district or another agency doesn't uh, really respect it or, or adhere to the outcome? Thank you. Questions? Hi, my name is Erica Jackson, and I go to Civic Center Secondary School, and I go to Ella Hill as a program for me. Um, I was wondering what quality sources do you have for young women? Some resources. We have uh, the Wellness Center that provides a lot of um, lines, like youth line. And they also provide you with girls group. I know we had mission girls at our school that provided three different girls group that it was for girls and for different ages of girls. And they taught us about uh, pregnancy and birth controls and a lot of stuff like that. So the wellness center is something that we have that helps women and boys. And at the middle school level, <clears throat> we're opening um, we're not calling them wellness centers, but we're calling them safe passage uh, centers. And we have all kinds of different community groups coming in to help us with, um, with interest of, ar around stopping violence, helping kids um, feel better about themselves and their environment. And I, I just want to say one last thing, and that is, although we're talking about all these problems, one of the great assets that we have in this city, in our students, is their resilience. There's, there's a lot of terrible things that happen in some of our neighborhoods on a daily basis, and yet we still have the kids getting up every day, coming to school, and, and doing the right thing. And I think we should stop for a second and think about that. Hi, my name is Tina Collins, and I, I live in the Western Edition. And this question is for everybody. How do y'all come up with y'all concepts for different programs without even, you know, dealing with the economic 
you know, culture boundaries, you know, because, you know, maybe some programs that y'all saying, because some of the stuff I'm hearing from y'all is bullshit, okay? I'm from the Western Edition. I live in the Western Edition. Where I was at, it was, last year was eight or nine killings. Last summer, we stopped a lot of killings by just having the center open. You know what I'm saying? And then y'all talk about um, um, learning, um, he said the LC program. I mean, the unified school district should be doing that from top one when you come into a class. You know, what I notice about y'all schools, I'm a mother, my daughter has to go out of the Western Edition to go to school. She has to go all the way to 25th and Terrellville to go to, to a good school. You understand what I'm saying? Y'all don't service all y'all schools the same. You know, so when y'all get up here talking, talk real. Don't talk with the, the, the bull. You know what I'm saying? Because my daughter, has, I have to get up way early in the morning. I have to take gas money. I have to go and gas is going up more and more and more and more and more and more and more. In order for my daughter to get the services that she needs. I have a, I have a daughter, a preschooler, that's three years old, has speech and language, um, speech and language problems. We had an assessment, and a person came in October. They, they, they took my daughter to us. They, they said they wanted her to go to the school. I told her I didn't want her to go to that school after I went to see how the school was because it wasn't up to my standards. You know, they, wanted to, they sent me to another black neighborhood that was underprivileged school for my preschooler, and it wasn't up to my code. And I kept calling them, asking them, what could they do to change my daughter to a different place? And as of today, my daughter still has not received her services. So, I mean, when y'all standing up there, come with the real, because y'all not servicing the way that y'all supposed to be servicing. You know, y'all need to be getting out to the communities, really talking to the people in the communities, not just coming and saying, this is what, this is what these people want, or this is what some of the people have said, you know, not to say, you know, the, maybe the Pacific Islanders, the Hispanics, or whatever, but from my understanding, I don't see that going on in my community. You know what I'm saying? I have to go outside and get services for my children. Do any of our panelists, would any of our panelists like to respond? Well, first of all, you know, the way people are placed in our school district is what the community wanted. I always tell people, be careful what you ask for, because they wanted an open choice system here in San Francisco that anybody could have an opportunity to go to any school in San Francisco. So what we have is basically a lottery. You get into a system that, that your kids, you could live across the street from a school and you may not attend it because the way the system works. Now, we're obviously, you know, look reviewing that system and, and in the next year or so, you're gonna see a lot of discussion open to the public to get input on, on whether or not that's the best kind of system. The idea of why originally they went to that system is that the community felt that that would help desegregate the district a little bit more. But in reality, statistically speaking, that hasn't come about through that system. So we are going to have an open discussion about that system. Iona, you can take one more question. We are having our last question. Well, ma'am, I would, I would invite you on Monday 
that uh, there's a board meeting to discuss the strategic plan, and you will see that in that plan, it specifically addresses what you just mentioned. You're well, that's open to the public Monday evening. Okay. Our last. The district office. I, uh, the question I had was uh, getting back to transportation. Is what are the barriers realistically to having a uh, public bus system for the students in the school district? I think I know some of the answers based on what the superintendent has said today, but I think having that kind of a system for students could make a big difference in a lot of different areas, truancy, um, accountability, and and I just feel like having the students have to get on Muni every day and go across town doesn't really benefit them. And as someone who rides Muni every day, I, I'm not here to indict Muni, but I'm just saying, to me, it might not be the most inviting ride to school every day. The, uh, in terms of, I guess, a public school bus system, I think it would really be an issue of resources. I think the taxpayers in San Francisco, they invest a great deal into Muni, and there would have to be an additional investment to create a, a second transportation system. I would say, as someone who, in New York, as an elementary student, middle schooler, and high schooler who used public transit, uh, I was afforded the additional benefit in terms of using the public transit system that I just, I didn't just go to and from home to school. I used it also to go to baseball games or I went for other activities. So we are blessed, I think, in terms of San Francisco, in terms of the expansiveness of the Muni system so that whether you're, you know, you're a student or adult going to work or a senior citizen, you can literally travel to every corner of this city uh, at any time of the day and it gives you a lot of access. A bus, a school bus system, um, going into my time when I was in Atlanta, largely, uh, you know, most of the students, if not all of the students, rode on school buses, and uh, that was additional cost to the school to the school system. They ran that system. It was additional cost to them, and uh, the students were literally limited to and from their home and to school, and in some cases, maybe if there was some sporting event. So. Uh, there's pluses and minuses on both sides, but definitely right from the beginning, there is, a, I would say, a significant cost factor. Okay, due to time, I know there's a lot of questions, so as I stated from jump, from the beginning, if you have any questions, please write them down because we will be collecting them because we are going to synthesize these questions and we are going to synthesize as well solutions that we came up with. We have one last closing question. Ms. Regina, I need the mic over here. And then Jeff will speak on compiling the solutions. Thank you, Ms. Regina. Thank you, Yvette. I really appreciate you uh, letting me ask this last question. I want to first of all thank the entire panel. Of course, Margaret, we want to see all those lights on. But my specific question is to our new superintendent, who I've not had an opportunity to meet. I am a representative of the new high school going in Bayview, um, Bayview Central School of Music, Arts, and Social Justice hearing about that. But my specific concern around the school district um, superintendent is the attendance on the back page, one of the main topics, that there's no professional development and it's not monitored by the district. My specific concern is Malcolm X. Malcolm X has a capacity of about 400 students and only attendance of about 102. And that's K through five. 
So that's a per, that's a real light I want to shine. Thank you, Yvette. The, you know, one of the problems with that system, I mentioned that people want to have access to go anywhere they can because we have an open choice system, is that they bust themselves out to other schools. And that's really what's happened there. And so when we review this type of system, uh, you know, we're, we're breaking up neighborhoods without the intention of wanting to do that. The intention was good. We wanted to give everybody access to what everybody could go to any school. But we now it's time, you know, years later to revisit that, to say, well, wait a minute, uh, what are we doing with this system? And, and I will tell you that we're open to have that discussion because it needs to take place. I think, you know, I, I, as you will see in our, um, our new strategic plan, our strategic plan is based upon one thing that I think is the most important thing facing America, and that is, you know, recently, a couple of years ago, we celebrated Brown versus the Board of Education. 1954, you know, they passed that, that the schools would be desegregated, and everybody celebrated it. Yet, today in America, our schools are more segregated than they were prior to Brown versus the Board of Education. I think that this is a, the greatest civil rights issue in America today is the achievement gap. You know, we've talked this to death, folks, but the reality is you cannot have systems that are separate but equal. You cannot have systems that allow African-American and Latino students to be so basically outperformed by even special education kids. You know, we've had the gap keeps growing tremendously, and we've talked it to death, and what we want to do is we want our new plan is going to be called Beyond the Talk. It's time to start saying, look, we're not going to talk about it. What are we going to do specifically to make sure that the schools that the woman mentioned and, and Malcolm X are just as good as anybody else's school? I mean, it's real simple, folks. Every school in San Francisco has to be good enough for any one of us to want to send our kid there. And if it's not, then it's unacceptable. All right. That's a great segue into solutions. Before we break for lunch, I just wanted to reiterate why we're here. And we're here for solutions, okay? And in order to great, get the solutions, it's true we do have to talk and we do have to articulate our positions, but we have to do it in a way that's respectful. And we have to do it in a way that is going to bring people together rather than uh, push people apart. I mean, you know, if we expect our young people and our children to exercise social-emotional learning, we have to do it uh, as, as, as adults. Um, so, you know, I want everyone here and everyone who's watching this uh, on, on the broadcast to think uh, about a solution that you may have to offer. And if you have it on the top of your head, share it with us. I mean, I'm thinking about the teen court. I have 95 attorneys in my office, the district attorney, um, although obviously I can't speak for her, has over 100 attorneys, maybe we could provide uh, the teen court support that you need in terms of attorneys coming in there. I can certainly uh, ask my staff to participate in that kind of program. That's what we do. Uh, we can bring young people to the Hall of Justice or the Hall of Injustice, and they can come and experience uh, what it's like to be a juror, what it's like to be an advocate, what it's like to be a judge. So that's maybe one thing that we can help. But let me just quickly, um, before we break for lunch, and these are just solutions now. It's not statements. 
but if anyone here has anything that they can offer you're all rich with resources it doesn't matter how old you are you have something to offer whether it's helping one person or coming to a class to express your experience we can start a speakers panel they already have this at many of the schools where you can come forward and share your experience so really quickly if we have any solutions here that folks want to offer yes Public library is very interested in helping students to achieve, all students to achieve. And we have wonderful resources that we would love to share with students. And we're finding more and more, I think because of No Child Left Behind, the standardized testings, testing and the fact that teachers can't get um, substitutes, um, that less teachers are bringing students to the library to learn about these resources and we're also not being able to get into the classroom and we'd really like to. There's a solution. All right. Solution? And all the kids we get ask about jobs, but we realize that a lot of them are lacking in science, math, and technology skills. How do we get these kids resources so they'll at least be able to function in a normal environment. Okay, but what's the solution? Well, we obviously need to get people like the superintendent to have uh, some of these underperforming schools more um, assistance. But how, how do we do that then? How do we bring that to well, well, students? Well, um, Margaret mentioned these uh, community school things where, where I know like a third of our kids Part of their problem is they don't speak English, or their parents don't speak English, so there's that d disconnect. Like if we're trying to get a hold of the parent for a, a family night, we need to have somewhere where parents can even go to get some training. If it's not language, it's parenting skills, it's, it's all these things, because we're finding that it's a systematic thing where if a kid is doing drugs, probably the parents are doing drugs. The kid is in a gang, maybe somebody in the family was in a gang. Okay, can anybody answer that challenge? I'll put it that way, whether it's a mentorship, whether it's being able to provide that kind of support to the parents and the youth. Yes? Again, we're focusing on solutions. Yeah, I'm Brock Estes. I'm a school bus driver, and I wish we could do a lot more mentoring than we do. But in answer to his question, um, the superintendent is wearing a Prop A button. As I understand it, Prop A is meant to funnel more money into, into some of the underserved schools in terms of a lot of the high seniority teachers choose to teach outside of that neighborhood and Prop A will put more money into those schools. So step one, vote for Prop A. <laughs> okay. All right, we have uh, Eddie. Yes, my name is Eddie Zeng. I'm from the Community Response Network for the Asian Pacific Islanders. I work under CYC. So one of the solutions that I want to propose is a speaking circuit with the, uh, the collaboration with the community frontline workers. So we would go to all the schools a lot of the time from our job to go to all the schools and start giving presentations dealing with the juvenile justice system, the educational system, and inspire hope, inspire the importance of education, self-responsibility, and um, having the understand 
their rights, knowing their rights. And one of the things that I'm doing is to get in the training for trainers from Angela Chan from the Asian Law Caucus is how to present this to the schools, to the students, so when they are being arrested, how they can protect their rights, even though they are in the wrong, but still how do they protect their rights and not incriminate themselves and be incriminating others. So my, my staff and I are starting to do this already into different schools as for Burton, Galejo is having the increase of the Peace Week on the May 30th. We're going to be participating in that. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to provide those type of speaking circuits to all the schools with utilizing the experience from the ex-cons, the people that who are in the, from the streets to go in there, but in a collaboration, not just the, for the Asian Pacific but the Latinos, like what, we, what we've been doing every week, we do a citywide outreach with all the CRN citywide. So we go to different schools to reach out to the wellness centers, check in with the deans and the SROs. We're trying to provide those type of support. So I would really love it to see that make it happen because we are offering our services to the schools to reduce and violence wanna, and reduce I just want to mention that Eddie Zing is a shining example of what is possible. He was down for nearly two decades and has now come out to try to make a difference. So let's join with Eddie on that. Rebecca? Muni with school release times so that uh, the where the bus stops are that the bus is going to be there say within 10 minutes of that final school bell so the kids don't have to wait 20 to 30 minutes for a bus and some kids have to transfer and then they wait another 20 minutes at the next bus stop and it takes 45 minutes to an hour to get home so if it could be coordinated between the school district Please. and Muni, that buses arrive at the bus stops at school release times and coordinate transfer points, you know, so that kids are not standing. A lot of stuff happens at the bus stops. If that's possible to coordinate, that would help kids on Muni and, and maybe have a Muni person at the bus stop. Okay. Okay. Okay, we have time for, for I'm sorry, just one yeah. more, and, 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 okay, all right, all right, peer pressure. Okay. Uh, my name is Rudy Corpus, United Players. Give a big shout out to Bianca, the only you represented on the panel, straight up. Um, I think one good solution is to focus more on elementary school kids, educating them in a way where they can comprehend. If these young kids man, could recite a whole E-40 album from the beginning to the end, it's time we find a systematic way to educate them about gun violence, which I know about that first grader came to school with a gun yesterday, right? Educate them about gang banging. Educate them about all these essential things that they need to know that's real to their reality. So focus on them, the, the elementary school kids. That's the solution. Thank you. And Rudy Corpus is the executive director of United Players, and they uh, work in the schools to reduce violence. Thank you. Hi, and thank you for that, because that's a great segue to what I'm getting ready to say. I have 15 job openings open for parents or grandparents of children who live here in San Francisco, and also of kids who are in um, foster care or higher level of placement of care. We currently serve 120 of your students here in special education. My name is Lenita Mims. I'm the family partner for Seneca Center. 
we have the Seneca Center Connections Office over on the 24th Street, where we are also building a family resource center in the next six months so that the parents of the city, of the San Francisco kids who go to San Francisco Unified School District can come and get services, food services, clothing services, and all of those. So please, I have some information on the back. Take a couple packets, hand it out, send my business card around, call me. Okay, now we're, we're going to have to break for lunch. Now, we do have lunch. We'll provide it uh, right outside. We've got delicious sandwiches. And this is also an opportunity for us to talk, to get to know each other, and to share our ideas. Once again, please fill out your form if you have any ideas that you want to add. These are going to be incorporated by Larry Roberts. And this action plan is then going to be provided to the panelists as well as to the public. Uh, we're going to come back. We have youth performances at 12.45, so be back here in half an hour. Uh, we're going to be honoring John Osaki from the Japanese Community Youth Center. Uh, we also have our second panel on how to reduce violence in the community. Let's give it up for our panel here. Yes. Thank you so much to all our panelists. FGTV, San Francisco Government Television. Second part, I hope you're ready. 
We have a performance lined up for you today from the students from Bayvac and the African American Art and Culture Complex. They're going to be doing three songs for you today. One is called Day by Day, another one is In My Hood, and the third one is Go Smart. And we have performing, yes, yes, we have performing New New, T Mac, Sticky, and FMT. Give them a round of applause. Hey! Check them out. Keith Hurry. Hey, we got a clap. I try to break away from this face that I portray. From this face. Hey. I only take it one step at a time. Day by day. People always hey. see what they wanna see. I see you. But they don't know how hard it is to be me. To be me. I only got so much to give. Caught in this lonely life I live. Life I live. Got me bugging on things I did. But it ain't gonna get me down. Ain't gonna get me down. Keep on bugging the things I do. Cause it's spreading on my business. Don't make it true. Make it true. Suggesting you keep it cool. Cause you don't wanna bring me round. From this face that I portray. that I portray. Cause that's not gonna make me me. Okay. I got some dreams of my own to achieve. And I'm gonna keep on going, no, no one believes. No one believes. Uh -huh. From the world got me down on my knees. Cause I'ma be what I can see. Hey. I try to break away from this face that I portray. Face that I portray. Only taking one step at a time, day by day. Day by day. People always see what they want. But they don't know how hard it is to be me. Right. Check them out, y'all. Okay, okay, okay. Her name is Nuno and she no, no. no more drama, that's wrong. Oh, my gang. It's the every day. Every day. Shall be, shall be swanging. And that's all I'm saying. We out here. Gotta break away. From this face that I portray. Face that I portray. Taking one step at a time, day by, by day. day. By day. People always see what they wanna see. Yeah, I see you. But they don't know how hard it is to be me. To be me. Where is, is it good in the hood? 
if I want me. Trouble is a weather we face. Every day. Yeah, we gotta face it. It's always my family. Go. Go. My family. It's talking here, but we really can't hear them. Sitting in the wet, but the ghost kind of spirit. We all see money as we dip through the scope. See Mac in the booth, my check. Let's go. Grace got the smell everybody want to see. I be leaning and rocking and going smart like see free. All around the bay, yeah, I'm known as the beast. Got the gang on the side if you want to get the piece. Go. I got it. like water. The homie disappear like a giant race mark. Mac got the cat. Keep going. Hey. Keep going. I'm not talking about that shit. Alright, go. My hood. My hood. Where is we it? Good. Is it good in the hood? Four one five till we die. Four one three, four one three. Trouble is what do we face? What we face every day. Every day we gotta face it. What I really like is their fresh blue jeans. While the black forces in two matches talk, teasing when I'm on the block. I got my black hoodie, the triple XL while I get the goodies. And what I got on my feet is their fresh new J's, the fresh fitted cap, but I'm not playing with the A, so on the next day. I got on that orange and black, so while I'm selling that, I just watch my money stack. I'm back like the men in black, and this is my sequel, baby. Boy, I'm like MySpace, cause I know people. A black belt, so you know I'm lethal. FIB means that you need to free yours. You know I'm better, but I stay fitted though. New plaid shorts or some cleany v New tees, fresh pack. It's sunny outside, so you know that I'm back. Go smart, man, for real. Let's do it. Face the peace, not the beef. Hey, yeah. Go smart, man. Get the cash, man. Get knowledge, get dollars, stay off the pen. Go smart, man. Go intelligent. All the other nonsense is irrelevant. Get smart, man. Get the cash, man. Get knowledge, get dollars, stay off the pen. Go smart, man. Go intelligent. All the other nonsense is irrelevant. Go, I go so smart till my hair fall off. Well, I see not that Berkeley and I'm already off. Yeah, in my private jet, I'ma get the masters and the doctorate. I'ma own three businesses and two cola, and I'ma keep my pockets full till my pants dry. I got a brain the size of this earth. Help out the hood and get back to the church. Nowadays everybody gotta go dumb, but I'ma go smart even if the only one. Five years is a having a gun, 25 to life. If you bustin' for fun, I got my future in my head already. I'ma go to college and keep my business.
got to get this mic fixed right. We're going to have Jeff come up and present an award. Yes. All right. That's a hard act to follow, let me tell you. So we got to go smart. Uh, every year, we honor one of our own who has distinguished himself or herself as a hero uh, for our youth, a warrior for our youth. And in San Francisco, that's a high calling because, as you know, so many of you uh, do this work day in, day out, that it is so difficult to choose uh, one individual. Um, but we have. And the person that we are honoring today is John Osaki. Yeah. Now, you know, when you meet John, you might, you know, think that, you know, he's from a privileged background or something, or that, you know, he didn't grow up uh, in the streets. He didn't grow up in the streets, but let me tell you, uh, he did grow up uh, at JCYC. And the Japanese Community Youth Council was a grassroots youth organization that was started in Japantown uh, many, many years ago um, by Jeff Mori. And John was actually a, uh, you know, a participant uh, in the program. Uh, he came up and uh, got his first summer job working at JCYC. Uh, but he's worked in, in youth uh, programs for his entire life. Um, he's worked in early childhood development substance abuse prevention, and youth employment. Uh, during the time that John has been the director of the Japanese Community Youth Council, they have expanded the range of their services uh, to include college access, community organizing, early childhood development, substance abuse prevention, youth employment, and youth leadership. Just to give you a sense of how many young people are served through JCYC, there are over 8,000, you can imagine, 8,000 children and youth from all ethnic backgrounds throughout the Bay Area who are served by JCYC. They help over 3,000 youth each year to become the first in their families to go to college. They put over 2,000 youth a year to work through employment programs, and we've got to increase that to about 20,000. Uh, but his program, um, you know, has has uh, in many ways uh, revolutionized uh, the way in which youth are employed in San Francisco. JCYC also is a primary provider of independent living skills for youth in the foster care system. Uh, not surprisingly, under John's leadership, JCYC's programs have received national recognition for achieving outstanding outcomes for youth, and the organization is often called upon by leaders in city government to implement new initiatives for children and youth. In recent years, JCYC has been singled out to carry key youth initiatives, which include the San Francisco Youth Works Program, as well as the Mayor's Vocational Program and the New Directions Program established by uh, Mayor Gavin Newsom. Uh, John also was involved in planning efforts uh, to establish the Asian Pacific Islander Youth Advocacy network to create a single voice for the unmet needs of the APA youth in San Francisco. But beyond all that John has accomplished, we honor him for his unselfish giving to other community-based organizations, many who are just starting off, many 
who are what they call just mom and pop operations that need support. A lot of times what we find is that community-based organizations, because they're fighting for survival, don't collaborate or don't coordinate. And what John has done is always has opened up his doors to anybody that needed help or support, particularly those from vulnerable communities, immigrant communities, and others who, would, who, who have needed his help and the help of his agency. He has been a partner. He has been an individual who has reached out uh, beyond uh, his agency to work with other agencies who share the common purpose of serving our youth. And I know John is here uh, with his family, his father, uh, Mr. Osaki, and uh, his uh, daughter and son and his wife, uh, Julie. I want to welcome them all. His brother is here as well and uh, many members of the staff from uh, JCYC. So let's give it up to uh, John Osaki. Before I say anything, um, can we real quick uh, give it up for Jeff Adachi and the Public Defender's Office for this year today? You know, I, I really want to thank Jeff uh, for his leadership, his willingness to tackle difficult issues. Um, you know, you've extended your office far beyond what you had to do, and you've given us this opportunity to create positive change in our schools. Um, and our streets, and, and I really want to thank you for that. Um, I want to just make a couple quick acknowledgments, and uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief in keeping with the theme of, of today. Um, but to my colleagues from the Asian Pacific Islander Youth Advocacy Network, uh, I'm so proud of what we have accomplished. Um, together we've given a voice to so many who have suffered in silence. Um, and I want to acknowledge two individuals um, who have been carrying out the vision of our coalition, um, and that's our coordinator, Jen Kazang. And you met earlier Angela Chan, uh, Chan from the Asian Law Caucus. Can you please give it up for them? Um, I also want to say really quickly to the members uh, of the Safety Network Partnership, uh, for many years, our efforts to bring people together have often been overlooked and unappreciated. But I know what tremendous contributions we've made to improving the quality of life in our neighborhoods. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing that work in the future. You know, it, it feels a little awkward to be up here and, and very humbling because I know there are so many of you in the audience that contribute to increasing safety in our schools and on our streets every day. So, so last week I had to ask Jeff, you know, of all the dedicated folks um, that you could have chosen, why did you select me? And he said to me that it was in large part because of my willingness to reach out and work with so many other communities. Um, for those of uh, Jeff touched on it a little bit, but at JCYC, we're very privileged and honored to be involved in um, several large collaborations with, very, uh, with some of the most diverse communities uh, in San Francisco. And our experience working with others um, has provided me with a little perspective 
on this term collaboration that you heard a lot about this morning and i want to just touch on that a little bit i know you all have important work to do and i applaud you all for taking the time to be here today but coming to this summit is the easy part the hard part comes when today is done and we all go back to our daily routines so i want to take this opportunity to challenge us all to take all the information the ideas and the best intentions from today and make a real commitment to working with each other to make our schools and our streets safer and i know that sounds like a no-brainer and something that's been said a million times in the past but in my experience to work together to really collaborate is much more difficult than most of us are willing to admit. It is so much easier to do things on our own. There are no other opinions to consider. We could do things the way we want to. And all the credit is ours if we're successful. But I guarantee you all that we can accomplish so much more together than we ever could on our own. And to work together, the first thing that we have to be willing to do is look within and ask ourselves if we could do better. It's easy to play the blame game and to see the fault in others. The CBOs aren't doing what they're supposed to. No, it's the police's fault. It's our school's fault. It's City Hall's fault. We can always point fingers, but in the end, that gets us nowhere. We can never truly work together until we stop assigning blame and start to look at what each of us can do. The second thing we must do, we must be open to the possibility that there's a better way of doing things. Too often as I sat through discussions and encountered an overwhelming resistance to change. And to all of those out there who are unwilling to change, and are not open to new ideas, I would ask you if we have things figured out. Are our children safe in our schools? Would we be here today if our streets were completely safe? As I already said, I'm not here to point fingers at anybody. But if you're not willing to be part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. The other thing we have to be willing to do is check our egos at the door and really listen to each other. There's a whole lot of folks in this town that just love to hear themselves talk, <laughs> but not enough who will really take the time to really listen to what others are saying. Working together means listening to each other and oftentimes taking no credit for accomplishments. Lastly, and most importantly, we have got to have faith in each other. I know it is difficult. I know there's a lot of history and there's been a lot of disappointment, but at some point we have got to start to believe in one another again. I've seen too many times when we project onto others what we believe they should be without taking into consideration who they really are. But at some point, we have got to be able to see in others what they can do 
instead of just focusing on what they can't. All of us can find a million reasons why something can't be done, but I'm going to challenge us all here today to look beyond what our experience tells us is possible. The most important characteristic of individuals, I believe, that make a difference in our community and in this world is that they do not confine themselves to what they think can be done. They focus on what must be done. And we must find a way to work together, not for ourselves, not for our organizations, but because there are children out there that need us to. There are children out there who need us to dream and take risks and do more than we ever thought was possible. Thank you very much. Give it up for John Osaki. This is a Community Award 2008 Juvenile Justice Hero Award presented to John Osaki in recognition of his extraordinary work in serving San Francisco youth. Special award. This is a surprise, so I'm not going to ruin it. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Marianella Woods. I'm a social worker from the Public Defender's Office in the Juvenile Division. And this is my co worker, Marcelina Sandoval, who's a youth advocate. Uh, today, well, as we all know, those of us who have anything to do with the juvenile justice system, there is a lot of bad news that we hear a lot of the time. There's a lot of heartache in this work, and there's a lot of tragedy in this work. And so before we get to the good news part, which we're going to do today, I would like us all to take a moment, just a moment of silence, to honor and remember those youth amongst us who were unfortunately, tragically part of the bad news that didn't make it, that have succumbed to street violence, incarceration, lifestyles that are detrimental to them. So let's just take a moment and remember our loved ones. Thank you. So today, there's also some good news, and it does happen, and it's important that we really acknowledge it. In 2003, George, the young man who we're going to acknowledge today, we'll leave his last name for reasons of privacy because he's truly changed his life. We'll leave that out. George became my client. He was one of those 16-year-old youths, first offense, very serious case. And the district attorney's office wanted to charge him as an adult. Fortunately, our office was able to prevail in the matter, and we were able to keep him in juvenile court. In a rare case, he did, unfortunately, then go to the youth authority afterwards, which is unusual in this county, relatively. We're fortunate in that way. And the reason why we want to honor George today is he made it. 
He made it through that system, and he more than made it through that system, as a matter of fact. And it's important that we acknowledge those kids that have. I'm going to let Marcy tell you about him. Hi, I'm Marcy from the Public Defender's Office, and I actually know George from um, his middle school. So I've always known the potential that George has had because he's always been an overachiever. So working at the Public Defender's Office, his case was referred to me, and I worked along with Marinella and Patty, our boss, you know, in making an exit plan to present to the board to let the board know that this, you know, young man from being in custody was able to coordinate some service plans for him to attend when he was released. Fortunately, he was released, and currently now George is attending a community college in the process of transferring to a four-year university to pursue his educational uh, goal, which is becoming a registered nurse. He's also um, found his passion, which is music, which allows him to express himself and share with the other people what he's been through and how he made it out. Um, you know, so I'm very proud of him, and I'm so happy to be a part of honoring him today. And Mr. Bully, George, come on up here. On behalf of the Public Defender's Office, George is being awarded a $500 check. Yeah. How are everybody doing today? That's good. Um, I'd like to say thank you, number one, um, to Marianella Woods, Patty Lee, Marcy, um, and uh, to my mother. Um, uh, for the time that I was in the Youth Authority, uh, DJJ, DJJ, um, you know, I learned a lot because when I got into the situation, when I went through the situation that I was going through at the age of 16, I didn't think that I was going to get out of the situation that I got into. And um, my mother was always there for me, number one. And I didn't see that before I got into the situation. For the youth that's here that don't see it yet, know that your parents are, for the most part, always there for you, number one. And sometimes you don't see it. Sometimes it takes something, I'm saying, dramatic to go, for you to go through, for you to see it. But I've seen it, and now that I realize it, I stay focused in everything that I do in a positive manner instead of putting all my energy into negative things. Um, the number one thing that I can say overall, because I'm not going to stand up here and preach, but the number one thing I can say is that when you do something, just be dedicated, loyally dedicated. And if it's not beneficial, it's detrimental. And never forget that. If you don't know what those words mean, go look them up. Um, yeah, and, 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 and that's how I live now. You know what I mean? And it took a lot of time, but I'm here now. You see me in the flesh. Um, I thank God for everything that I did. I mean, all the changes that I made, and I want to thank I me. Mean, it's numerous number of names I could say that I thank, but it's just like, man, you know what I'm saying I'm here, and I just like to thank everybody who was in, who was supporting me as I went through what I was going through. I mean, and um, music is my passion. I sing, and I learned that's how I express myself. So y'all who do poetry or singing or rapping, whatever you do, you know what I'm saying you've seen the young, the youth up here performing. You know they did a good job. Um, express yourself, like the old song. I mean, uh, yeah. That's what I had to say. <laughs>
Thanks, everybody. Well, let's give it up for George. I also wanted to mention not only not only is George going to school, he is also working two jobs. And now I would like to introduce Dr. Clem Donahue. And Dr. Donahue is the director of the Trust Clinic at the San Francisco General Hospital, and it's a clinic for teens who are victims of violence. And he is a founder and medical director for this clinic, which stands for Team Trauma Recovery Using Supportive Teamwork Clinic. And they do an incredible job. It's amazing what they do for our young people who end up being victims of violence. Dr. Donahue. I want to give uh, mad props to George. I, I don't, I've never, I heard your story today. I have goosebumps right now because I'm so proud of you and uh, just mad props to you for straightening out your life and Jeff Adachi in the, in the Defender's Office getting, helping you get there. All peace and go prosperous and... and <laughs> I think, you know, the word that I've been using a lot late, lately that I think is true, and I feel it in everybody in this room and everybody who works with us, is like integrity, right? And that's a word that I've been using a lot with my friends. And it's just like if you go with integrity in your soul and you go with passion and you, and like um, Jeff said in his uh, speech and stuff, what you have to do is just check yourself at the door, trust others, and work and go forward and things will happen and things will be better. And don't try to solve the world's problems by yourself, but if you can solve your problems in your small world, Everybody will, the world will prosper and go get better. Okay. So I'm Clem Donahue. I run the Trust Clinic at the General. I work, one of the pediatricians has been there for about 15 years. I work here with Ando Quo and about 20 of us. And I, there's a young man who is sitting here whose mom recognized me. She goes, I know you. I go from the General, and her son is the tallest guy in this room now, and he's 21, and he's like, he goes, yeah, I remember you too. And so, so we've been at the general, we're there, and I know this is about the schools and making the schools safe, but we want all you to know that we're there at the general to help you guys. I help work with Rochelle Dicker and Andre Campbell, the two trauma surgeons that are always in the newspapers every day. What happened is, and this, is, this meeting is about kind of solving problems, and so in our little world, we try to solve problems too. And we, I was running into this situation because I work in the teen clinic a lot, working with young men, a lot of men that have a lot of problems in the city. A lot of us know, you know, these kids are typical cases like this. And a lot of these kids are getting, as you know, are getting shot. And, you know, 100 people almost got murdered in San Francisco last year. 15 of them were youth. Two kids got killed last year. They were, you know, 15 years old. You know, first graders are taking guns to school, you know. I don't have to give you all the bad numbers, but these kids, once they get shot, they fall in our lap. A lot of them are at the hospital for three months. They're in the ICU for two months. They're on the ward for a month. They're fairly angry kids. They're fairly angry parents. These cases for us medically are, you know, psychologically, socially, medically are very, very complicated. And then once they leave the hospital after they survive their wounds and they have all their issues, we take care of them at the general. And so we formed a, um, the trust clinic and we formed a group where we have multiple services working together. And I think this is, this is a little bit what John was talking about in his, in his honorary speech, is that you have to work with other groups. So we now work with the teens. We work with the trauma group. 
We work with the physical therapists, the social workers, the wound people. We have San Francisco Unified School District there. We have CCS people there. All these players come together and we have meetings and we talk about all the kids and we try to um, give them the services they need and pl plug the holes. We actually had Highland came. Highland actually inspired us to start a program called the Wraparound Project, which I'll talk about. And uh, we actually came and had them observe us and they were just amazed at how well we knew our kids. We knew their phone numbers. A lot of these parents have our phones and their cell phones and stuff. If they need anything, they can call us. And because of this, we can try to help get their lives back together, get them back in school, get them services, and get them medically and surgically um, fixed as much as we can. Then uh, the other problem we had, and this is, was inspired by Highland's program. Highland has, you know, as has twice as much trauma, basically, as we have at San Francisco. And as we know, Highland has that huge swath between the, both those freeways that just goes from you know, ghost town down there underneath the MacArthur Maze all the way out towards San Leandro. It's, I live in the East Bay, and I, but I work in the city, and it's, there's a lot of things going on in Oakland, as we all know. And they inspired us to start a program called the Wraparound Project. And the Wraparound Project, a lot of you know about, it's, it's directed by Rochelle Dicker, one of the trauma surgeons. And what happens is we at the general kind of boxed in that concrete building there on the backside of Petrail Hill. A lot of everybody's gotten services there or walked in that place at least once. And what Rochelle started was this project where she had took three um, case managers, it's uh, Mike Tejada, Ricard, um, uh, Javier Antejada, and uh, Mike Tejada, and uh, Ricardo Garcia Acosta. And are they here today? I know. This is the way that you kind of work. You try to make your community work. And we, ha we have these case managers from the community, know these communities really well, know these families really well, and they work within the CRN, the Community Resource Network. If a kid gets shot, comes into the hospital, they then have somebody's on call, they bounce down to the ER, they meet the family, the family wants information, they're angry, the kid might die, hopefully he doesn't. And we just quickly mobilize and work together to try to help this family while they're in the hospital and after the hospital and help them with as many services they need. And um, that was a way that the general could step outside of its kind of concrete building there, work within the community and work with liaisons such as these three wonderful case managers. And they make our job so much easier because we are actually bigger than the, the front entrance of the general where the big heart is. We actually now go have fingers into the community and help us, you know, get them to trust us and get them to get us to understand what their issues are specifically and help them in any way possible. Okay. And if any people have people that you need, kids in your school that need medical services, need coordination of care and stuff, please access us at the general. All the phone numbers are in the phone book. Um, and uh, just, you know, you can make a, a clinic appointment there really within two weeks' time, and we would be more than happy to help anybody in our teen clinic or even, you know, younger sibs and stuff. We see kids till they're 25 years of age, and uh, we start seeing kids when, as soon as they're teenagers when they're 12 and 13. Okay? So whatever we can do to help you guys, you know, you have our love and whatever we can do to help service you. So let me set this video up. So we're, this is a, the piece you can see this here. This is one of my, our more famous patients over the last year. And he got shot in Oakland, but he's a San Francisco resident. And he was in the hospital for the length of time. So, so we got, I was approached by two resident, three residents, Trisha Kajal and Alex. And they approached me about helping make a film about youth in San Francisco who were shot what are the kind of issues they go through during their shooting, while in the hospital, out of the hospital, and all the people that kind of have access. You try to help them get back together. We're talking about parole officers, the wraparound project, the doctors, physicians, social workers, nurses and stuff. Who helps put these together? And this is just a snippet of the piece. This is only, this piece is just a little bit under 10 minutes. The whole film is going to be done. And it was generously edited by Eric Katsoulis over here. From, 
And, uh, and this piece is, we're going to try to get it out a lot this summer, and we're already talking with San Francisco Unified and hopefully maybe show this piece in the schools, and hopefully we'll be in some film festivals in the Bay Area this summer. So uh, enjoy the film, and uh, hopefully we, if we have, can help you in any way possible, please you know, call us and notify us, okay? Like 
before I got stabbed, though, like, I, my brother had got stabbed, you know, so he was in the hospital like before me. Youth violence is a tremendously serious issue in San Francisco. In fact, violence as a whole is the leading cause of years of life lost in San Francisco. Part of why there are so many years of life lost in, with violence compared to other diseases like a heart disease or cancer is because violence is a disease of the youth. Um, some of it is gang-related, some of it is not gang-related, um, but, but sadly the outcome is the same. I heard somebody say, say, I have to get out of the hospital to go get my gun because I need to defend myself. I heard that today. And, you know, it scared me because I, I felt like did, that's another somebody that I have to probably see in the hospital or hear their mother have to hear the news that their son just died. I don't want to say white people, you feel me, like, but I see them as, like, if a, if a person come in and try to talk to me, you know, I try to hide my tattoo. They're like, is he working with the system? Is he working with my PO? No, they don't even know I got my PO. You know, they don't make my tattoos, you know. So, Javier put himself in my position, you know. He came in, you feel me, he's Latino. He'd be like, you know, I was in your shoes at one point. Tell me about Mike. I thought I'm cool because he's been, like, through the same stuff. I've been through, he been shot up. He's been through the projects and all of that. So, we're kind of, like, connected. So the first time we just connected, just that she was opening up to me, getting your cell phone number, I would call him, we were talking. What do you, why do you call him? I call him because sometimes I'd be down. I've been in the hospital, I've been in the hospital for almost two months. And I'm going to be here for my birthday, I'm going to be here for um, Halloween. Which I really wasn't planning on. I was planning on having so much fun for Halloween and my birthday. Plus my sister's birthday and then my dad's birthday was today, which is the 19th. And like I'm just missing out on a lot of stuff. My mouth is wired up. I can't eat the, the food that I want to eat for my birthday. My dad's birthday, my grandmother and them cooking and I stress marks and everything. I lost so much weight. My arms used to be a big, legs used to be big. I lost Lost tons of weight. Right now, I'm like looking like an Ethiopian. <laughs> Instead of having older patients who are in their 20s being shot, I'm seeing kids who were 14, kids who were 15, kids who were 13. We even had a nine-year-old who was shot recently um, who came here for care. So younger people getting shot with higher caliber weapons. Instead of being shot with a 22 caliber, which is a relatively small firearm, we're seeing kids now being shot with things like machine guns, semi-automatic weapons. Uh, when we try to count the holes, you know, sometimes they're too numerous to count. I mean, it seems like it's easier to get a gun now than get a driver's license. I, I think it's really, really ironic that it's no different than uh, the wild, wild west, you know, from whatever, 250 years ago, 200 years ago when the west was getting developed. And these kids, you know, if you worked on a farm and you lived in the rural community, you had a gun on your waist belt in case, you know, the outlaws came by, and you needed to have a weapon to protect yourself. It's no different now, modern times and era, that we have. These kids have to carry a gun just to protect themselves to get home from school. There's, uh, in case somebody comes up on you, if you don't have a, a weapon, all you can do is run and try to escape. Do guns really protect you? Yeah, it's a 50-50 chance. Because somebody can pull their gun quicker than you can pull yours. How 
15, 14. I think the lowest is 14. Kids who are just hanging out, gang or gang affiliated on the street. These are kids going to high school, a high school in, in San Francisco. When you ask these young people, if you needed to get a weapon, could you get one within four hours? 71% said no problem. You about a sword, you die about a sword, and I'm pretty sure I don't about anyone that die about a sword. That's my life to them. And get out of it while you can. But some of them is it's too deep already. Like with the with the with the sets against each other, like it's too deep. And it's crazy. Kind of hurt my heart a little bit to see young people just dying left and right. Like that, my age. Like I said, I ain't nothing crossed my mind yet about changing lifestyle the way I live. It just got me wiser, smoother. You know, I watch my step, you know, every crack I step, I watch, you know. So, you know, but it could be a possibility that could be injured, you know. Like, anybody could get injured, you know, for anything. It could be a mistake for something, you know, for like, you know, it could be when the one colors got hurt, you know. But, you know, like, my face already burned and, and you know, feel me, with my rivals and stuff like that, you know. So, if anything, if I try to be like, for, for example, if I try to lay low, stop doing what I'm doing, stop banging in the... They know my face and I ain't gonna have a chance. Well, I don't back no more, dude. Leave me alone, you know? There's none of that crap no more, you know? It's just gonna just officially just go, oh, that's that dude right there from, ooh, ooh, you know? Let's go get him. You know, so it's, it's like, I could say, you know, I don't wanna get injured, you know? Whatever, but if, if I do, I do. You feel me? It's my fault. I just gotta deal with it, you know? I don't wanna, though. But I feel like the pop, I would, though. I would, though, get injured again, you know? Not hospitalized, though, because I'm a. You know, I'm cautious about everything now, you know, but I'll probably won't be like, you know, into a little bit. Not bad over here.
And it's my honor and privilege to introduce my boss, uh, Chief Deputy Public Defender, Teresa Cafesi, who will be conducting this second workshop. And I think given the video that we've just seen, it will be a very meaningful workshop. Teresa? Thank you, Patty. Thank you. Thank all of you. People say talk is cheap and events like ours invoke a lot of talk. Be worried because today, talk will be anything but cheap. If today is all talk, then the costs will be far from cheap. The bill coming due in writing off a next generation of youth is one we cannot afford to pay. So let's make today a day that we squeeze every bit of value from talking and that means that when we leave, we must walk the talk. So let's begin by introducing to you our dynamic panel that's going to get engaged in a very dynamic dialogue on the topic for this afternoon's panel discussion. Guns and violence in our community, what's working and what's not. Their uh, bios are in the pamphlet, so I'm going to do a brief introduction of all of our panelists. First, we have Maya Dillard-Smith, Ms. Smith is the Director of Violence Prevention with the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. She's also a Senior Advisor to Mayor Gavin Newsom. We have Lieutenant Ernie uh, Ferrando, San Francisco Police Department Gang Task Force. David Onick, Executive Director of the Berkeley Center for Criminal Justice at UC Berkeley Bolt School of Law. Chief Sifferman, Chief Probation Officer. Malik Sinefero. You know, Bayview, director of the Bayview Safe Haven. John Torres, violence response coordinator for San Francisco's Department of Children, Youth, and Families. And Cheryl, Cheryl Davis, many of you know, program coordinator of Mo Magic, a community collaborative servicing the Fillmore Western Edition neighborhood. Last but not least, we have Janelle. And we it's Janelle. Janelle. There we go. We have Tyree. Is that right? And then we have another youth representative, I think, that is joining us. Sherelle. Sherelle, thank you. All right, so let's start. Let's start with what is working, all right? And John, I've got a question for you, John Torres. I hear that there's a summer school safety plan, a summer school safety plan that started in May of 07. What is it and what worked? Uh, simply what it is, uh, last year prior to summer school beginning, there were four partners uh, that collaborated on looking at the summer school sites, uh, addressing which communities they were in, and then coordinating our services around that. Um, the, the four entities were the MTAP program with MUNI, the Youth Services Unit through uh, San Francisco Police Department, and the security uh, unit, the security guards through the San Francisco Unified School District, and then lastly, our CRN uh, initiative with DCYF. And what we essentially did, like I said, is really just roll out responsibilities that each of us would take on. It really was in the scope of work that we already are doing. Um, and to kind of form what that looked like, the security guards already tasked to really do on-site interventions 
you know, knew they're going to they're gonna be the primary lead on that, but then had the supports of both the MTAP program and the CRNs to deal with interventions, community interventions outside uh, the perimeter of the school. And then the police department served as a supportive role in case it really escalated to another level where they needed to be brought in. But um, the result of that last year, uh, previous to this collaboration with the four entities, there had been incidences uh, kind of almost riots at different schools, um, lots of arrests, and last year there were very minimal arrests, if none, from my recollection, on youth-on-youth -youth violence during summer school. This, this was last summer, right? This was last summer. That was summer. the first time that you had that basically this plan in place. Yes. Now, just concretely, what did you do? Did the t were the teams actually on the campuses when, when school let out? Yes, there were right. assignments, site-level uh, assignments, where, again, there were reps of those four entities, they all checked in, talked about what uh, that particular day brought. Right. So if there was any kind of climate, you know, anything emerging, then they would discuss that. All right, that's going to happen again this summer? It is, is that right? Yes, it is okay, now I want, I want a concrete example of a situation where this worked, where you folks went in and diffused the situation so that violence didn't erupt. Concrete, concrete example. Um, at Burton last year, there was, uh, in the first week of summer school, there was a gun-related altercation that took place. The Community Response Network and MTAP folks actually took the, the conflicting uh, individuals away and ended up, through their case management program, relocating two of the folks that were amidst this conflict, uh, transferred them to ISA. After that uh, incident that first week, all the... All of that died down, that conflict that took place. Were you stationed at all the schools, public schools here? Uh, there were, I think, in last summer school, there were maybe three sites that there wasn't the full collaboration, but they were also not uh, seen as sites that were going to have many issues. But this year we uh, have fewer sites, so we're going to be there at, at every site. Why do we have fewer sites this year? Um, that one, I don't know. That was a, that was a school district uh, decision on, right. on the summer school sites. All right. Now, do we have less resources this year or what? I mean, do we, we what, what do we expect to happen? Um, the similar collaboration. So, I mean, we, we expect that there will be, you know, this similar or hopefully, uh, you know, some of the same success. Um, but it was, again, it was just about coordinating the existing resources. So there was nothing additional right. fund-wise or anything. So basically having folks on site, mm -hmm. on site to diffuse violence is a good thing and seems to have worked last summer. And having right. a clear way of communication. All right. Now, Maya, I'd like to ask you if you can elaborate on what plans are in place this year to make it successful. Certainly. Um, last year, amidst a wave of violence um, right around this time of year when we know that um, youth are going to be let out of school and the weather's getting warm and we tend to see an uptick in violence, uh, the mayor established a Summer Street Violence Prevention Council last year to coordinate the various city agencies that allocate resources to programs that deal specifically with preventing violence by engaging our youth in a variety of services and activities. We've reconvened that body this year and started meeting earlier in the year in February so that we could coordinate all of the city's violence prevention efforts. And this year we're also coordinating on the ground with community-based organizations through DCYF's conveners. So we are circling around to conveners in the hotspot neighborhoods um, to ensure that our violence prevention activities are coordinated. We have a, 
intention to coordinate uh, our collective efforts so that we have activities ongoing throughout the summer in the hotspot neighborhoods that connect with youth who are most at risk for being either victims or perpetrators of violence. And so this year, through our coordinated effort, we are focusing on um, the summer safe passages that John is leading in partnership with the MTA and SFPD. We are coordinating um, sports and recreation activities and linking to the Reviving Baseball in the Inner City Initiative, which is started out of MOCJ, which has signed up 500 youth around the city, particularly in the hotspot areas and on public housing sites to reconnect them to baseball and some of the sports activities. This is a, um, a collaborative effort between the Giants, the Cal Ripken Foundation, and the Black Aces, and it's being held throughout the city um, this summer. We're also connecting with the uh, Pop Warner um, leagues here in San Francisco, which do both football and cheerleading. We will be launching an aggressive anti-violence campaign in partnership with Dr. Joe Marshall called Alive and Free. We will be um, partnering with Kaiser Permanente, Clear Channel, and United Way of Bay Area. They are all sponsoring and underwriting that campaign. It's going to kind of be like uh, I Hate Sarah Marshall. So how many folks saw the I Hate Sarah Marshall campaign? I mean, it was all over. If you look, Anywhere you looked, you, you saw I Hate Sarah Marshall. We have to begin to create the culture that we won't, will not accept the intolerable rates of violence here in San Francisco. We hear, um, we hear you there. Let me stop. Now, you, you've listed a lot of, a lot of things that are going to be going on. Where can we find, where, can we, where, where are we going to look to to see when this is going to start? Where can we look to so we can say, oh, this is starting here, and we can go here, and we can hold us accountable for this happening this summer? Certainly. So our intention is we're developing a summer resource guide that will be available in the next few weeks that we will be disseminating through all of our outreach efforts, which are the Safety Network, the CRN, the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Services, the community conveners that DCYF coordinates, and the community builders that are coordinated out of the Mayor's Office of Community <coughs> Development, So our, and with the San Francisco Housing Authority. So our intention is to make sure that these, and uh, school district, our intention is to make sure that these resource guides are saturated to youth and families so that it is a resource guide for the variety of services that are available. It will also be available at the MLCJ website, and we are partnering with United Way so that you can access that information by calling 211, which is a, uh, a phone number that United Way of the Bay Area operates, and it catalogs all of the health and human services programs that are available in San Francisco. All right. Is summer, res is summer resource guide printed yet? It is um, at the printer and will be available. And when can we expect it to be out? in the next few weeks. All right. Now, I want to, can you just give us one, just one thing, one start date, one, and not a list of them here, but let's say one particular, uh, one particular activity that all of us here can look to that has a definite start date that we can come to? Certainly. So on June 21st, um, the mayor will be sponsoring a youth event for youth from the various hotspot neighborhoods and other interested youth to come together um, for an, an, a live and free event. We are partnering with the Hip Hop Chess Federation and think that we'll be able to bring um, RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan, who's doing some really innovative things around the country on the issue of violence prevention. This is really an opportunity to engage our young people on um, the issues that are confronting them around youth violence, particularly gun violence, um, to hear from the youth voice, but to also create a safe and structured environment for our young people 
people just to have a good time. We don't have very many opportunities for them to come together in the city to do just that. So that's one of the particular things that we'll be doing. Another thing is we are hosting seven events at um, public housing sites throughout the summer in partnership with the Department of Children, Youth, and Families called Unity Day events. These are massive, large-scale community events that will have mobile social services, um, on-site day of that people can connect to in terms of job training programs, mental health services, dental and health screenings, those sorts of things. And so it really is to create the community cohesiveness um, in the neighborhoods that are most afflicted by violence. All right, let's engage a couple of our youth now then. Janae, did I pronounce your, your name correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. Janae, what do you think? What do you think it's going to take to have a safe summer from your perspective? Well, Go you should it, get into a lot of programs cause, and get a job because I need some money. <laughs> and so I got a lot of job offers so far. I have like six, and they pay good money. So if you keep yourself involved in a lot of activities, then you won't be in a lot of violence because people who get into gangs and get into gang activity aren't in a lot of stuff. So they hang out and get in trouble not doing anything. If you do stuff and keep yourself in activities – yeah, occupied, then you won't be able to have, oh, you ready to go fight this girl? No, I got to go to work. You ready to go <laughs> rob this bank? No, I got to, we're going to Six Flags today. So, like, if you just keep yourself involved in a lot of activities, then you won't have time to get into bad stuff. Janae, you have six six job um, offers. offers. Cool. I just got one I mean, today, yeah. uh, $10. <laughs> so keep yourself occupied. Tyree, what do you think? What do you think it's going to take for a safe summer, for you to have a safe summer? Well, I like to hang around, like like you said, but I keep my focus on the studio. Like I just did my my songs, and we have a program in the summer at the Cultural Center, um, huh? Webster and Fulton, from 9 to 3.50, I think. <laughs> Oh, nine to five now. Uh, but, uh, so uh, it's basically your mama's schedule. So um, come check it out. I mean, it's all type of positive stuff you could do: art, um, drama, like we do rapping, make beats, produce. I mean, that's about it, though. All right, cool. Sherelle, do you have anything to add there? What do you? Um, it's gonna take the kids to stop the violence. Say that again. It's going to take the kids to step up and stop okay. the violence. And how are we going to do that? How do you think, from your perspective, how do you think we do that? Well, people need to step up as kids until they friends to stop fighting and all the rest of this stuff. Voices of the future. There you go. There you go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> all right. All right. Right. Um, John, I'm going to pick on you again because um, you're do CRN. Yes. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Because that is part of the positive, the positive things we are doing to stop the violence. And I'm going to follow up because I think, with, after you tell us briefly, how we can expand what you're doing and who you're going to need on this panel to help you move forward to stop the violence. Um, the CRN stands for Community Response Network, and it actually comes from uh, many years of experience in the Mission District around gang prevention. The uh, CRN, though, took a turn to not just have the responsibility on one particular agency or program, but really to establish a collaborative network of existing resources. And so uh, the idea is to pull together youth-serving agencies, young adult youth-serving agencies, that target the same populations, the gang-involved kids, the at-risk kids, and then collectively work together uh, through a neighborhood-based approach. 
the three core components are crisis response, and crisis response has meant anything from uh, intervening in school altercations, you know, the type of work that we were talking about with the summer safety plan, but also uh, ranging all the way to supporting families during a homicide and working alongside uh, the crisis response team that's out of the Department of Public Health. So as it is, we do have some partners, but you're right, there's some expansion. Uh, one of the other uh, components is the care management component. It's what we do uh, as far as like advocating and the day-to-day -day service with individual clients. Could be truancy-related advocacy, it could be just court-related advocacy, whatever their care management needs or case management needs, that's the other component. And then lastly, is the street level outreach, which essentially, depending on the neighborhood's needs, is uh, canvassing hotspots in a particular neighborhood, um, you know, just approaching youth on whatever corner block they may hang out, do interventions, but also then try to link those individual youth with resources, get them the information about what is out there, you know, jobs or whatever, and either try to refer them into our case management services or just try to link them into a job fair again or something that they could go as a one-shot uh, type of approach. Let me wait, I, I want to sure. ask a question here. It's interesting because after watching that film, you, you mentioned what CRN does is canvas the hot spot neighborhoods, right? Kind of going to, going to those neighborhoods to hopefully um, uh, diffuse any potential problems. Kind of like what, what we're talking about, violence as a uh, public health issue, right. targeting the infectious disease perhaps before it spreads. Yeah. Can you give it a, of us an example of how CRN went into, let's say, a hotspot neighborhood and how that can work and how we can expand that so we quell the violence before it erupts? Yeah. Um, well, first, there's actually activities that may already be pre-planned, so it may be a coordination of taking a group of youth, you know, say there's already been identified 10 or 15 youth, hey, you know what, we're going to take you off the streets for the night, and at, we're going to take you to a Warriors game, a Giants game, movies, whatever. For a period of time, three or four hours, we are going to be with you, supporting you, and just, you know, letting you be kids, essentially. So there's some of the pre-planned work that does happen. Uh, some of the other activities, though, that have taken place within this general outreach and just being uh, canvassing hotspots has been intervening on either gang initiations or major uh, issues. There was one time um, on, a, on one of the Friday night outreach that was taking place, there was a group of uh, 10 young men that were in the Mission District, uh, 24th of Mission to be exact, and, you know, a little bit opposing to the guys that do hang out on 24th of Mission. There's about 20 guys that were going to jump these other 10. And through intervention, we were able to mediate that night. Nobody, you know, either got jumped in or got hurt. We were able, uh, with the van that we do, some of the canvassing, actually take the, t the, the 10 young men out of the neighborhood. And again, nothing erupted in any violence. How often does this happen? I mean, can we in our communities kind of expect you to be there every week? Or how, how does it work? I mean, how do you decide, okay, today's the day or next month's the month? I mean, right. is this predictable? There is some predictability. Uh, when I say that, each of the neighborhoods, right now we are in the Western Edition. There's a Bayview Hunters Point CRN. There's a Mission CRN. And then an Asian Pacific Islander CRN, which is more of a citywide uh, CRN. Um, Coming actually will be one in the Viz Valley Sunnydale area as well, but that's still in the planning phase. But each of those CRNs do, you know, an assessment of what type of outreach 
that they may need to do some of the issues that they need to target within their own neighborhoods. What I mentioned was a mission-related incident. Um, obviously, there isn't as many uh, housing developments there, so some of the outreach that has taken place in the Bayview and the Western Edition has been more focused around housing developments and, and being able to work with those kind of entities. So there is outreach calendars that, again, we, we produce as those individual neighborhood-based, and so there is somewhat of a you know, CRN. Uh, program that needs to be expanded? Is it? Um, you think? I mean, does I, it need I, to be expanded? Anybody? Does it? Oh, we got a hand over there. Sorry? <laughs> well, I'm pretty what? sure it does need to be expanded okay. if there's still people on the streets. I Is mean, it, obviously, yeah. you haven't done enough to focus on everybody because everybody isn't off the streets. Right. And, um, like, in my community, I, well, my mother lives in the Alamany community, and uh, they started a program, and, like, everybody got involved with it. One is, uh, we have a garden, so now they have jobs at the garden. You get $100 every week and stuff. Like, I mean, that, that got a lot of people off the streets and stuff. And also, every summer, we do a, a basketball tournament. And um, I think, like, a couple of months ago, we did a football tournament in the Mission District. And, like, I mean, stuff like that, it gets everybody involved because everybody likes sports. So, I mean, if you do more things like that, that should get some of the more people off the streets. Yeah. You're pointing to concrete examples of things that are working, and that's exactly what we're challenging all of us here to do so we can walk the talk. So who here, for example, why can't we have more of these programs? Maya, what? Oh, Janae, okay, you got it. You go, girl. <laughs> because some, some people don't go to these programs. I'm in about three so far. I'm in UP leadership and the this music program that I'm in. And I tell all my friends, like, you don't have to sing to come to it. You don't have to rap. You could just want to learn beats. And then for leadership, we go out in the community and talk to people. All of my friends like to talk. So I'm like, instead of talking on the phone with me, why don't you go out and talk to somebody about something that matters? And so, like, you can say, I can even sit up here and lie and say, okay, I tell them to come. But then even if they don't come and, like, a lot of my friends don't want to come, then it's, like, really nothing you can do. But then you should always, like, my friends call me annoying because, like, don't go to Janae because she's like, are you going to the UP meeting today? And then if I say no, then I'm going to get mad at them. So then it's, like, you have to pressure people to go to these programs. So, like, even if you put them out there, that doesn't mean everybody's going to go. Okay, cool. Expand your horizons. There you go. Okay, so let's, let's ask some of the adults. Okay, who, who here can challenge, can is, is can respond here to what Tyree and and Janae has, has mentioned? We need particip Malik, please. I think you know. First, let's give the youth a hand. Yeah. I first want to say thank you for being here, uh, and this is actually just. Uh, sin from the Creator, because that's uh, not a sin, but a send from the Creator. And I just want to say that it's very important that we uh, allow our youth to be more creative. Uh, the, the most important part of our community in which we lack is creativity. Uh, most of our community is more robotic state of mind, where uh, either you're playing a video game or you're getting involved in what the TV tells you to do. Uh, our school is lacking the creative skills. Our families are lack of, lacking uh, creative skills, and uh, no one is able to communicate on that, on that emotional level that was talked about earlier. Uh, so we lack emotion because we have no creativity. 
so i think that is very important for our c b s and everything everyone else who's involved in the child's life to parlay the experience of creativity that we had growing up how are we going to do that suggestions what do you think we do well the c b s have to have have more available people who have the ability to be creative you know most of these people who want to do the work you know they have the heart for it but most of all they need a check you know i know for myself just speaking from my own thing we all have a reason why we need to get paid you know but the major thing is is that when you come into a community that is lacking so much poor on so many levels from knowledge to unable to even make it to college i mean from all of those different levels you have to have a sense of creativity so in my program at safe haven i try to have every level of creativity available for them not just the music not everybody wants to rap not everyone wants to sing not everyone wants to play football or basketball some people want to paint some people want to draw some people want to write books you know these are different things that we have to offer to them and if they don't like it we try something else but we have to keep moving and pushing this idea of creativity into their minds all right before we go on to another topic, I just wanted to follow up with how we can go about expanding the CRN program. And Maya, I was going to ask you, so good. I'll intervene, and I won't speak directly to the CRN, but I want to talk about what we need to do to be more effective with the resources that we have. So on average, San Francisco spends about $60 million on violence prevention intervention actually so this is not prevention this is not school-based strategies this is not you know those youth development programs that deal with young people before they're involved in the system I'm talking about after somebody's been touched by the system one way or the other we're spending about 60 million dollars on the back end that doesn't include any of the enforcement dollars per capita San Francisco spends more than any other city in the country so if you look across the bay at the city of Oakland where I chair an oversight committee there and are managing about a 200 million dollar pot of money there uh, on average each year Oakland spends about six million dollars for the variety from prevention to intervention so the dollars we're spending are considerable here in San Francisco we've got a lot of uh, programs that are engaged in really important work but in many instances both among the programs or CBOs that we fund and also at the city level our efforts are fragmented and so one of the ways that we can be more effective in the use of the resources to support the CRN, to expand the collaboration between those variety of outreach efforts that I talked about, is to really uh, mandate the coordination to ensure that the CRN, the safety network, MONS, community builders, community conveners are all talking and those efforts are underway. It's to make sure that as we make decisions about how we allocate the entire pot of $60 million that we're doing that in a coordinated manner because right now each agency essentially doles out their money independent of one another. And so we've got to be more strategic about our investment to deal with this issue and we've, we've also got to have some shared outcomes. What is it that we expect for our young people? What is what are the benchmarks we're going to hold ourselves accountable to? Are we going to reduce homicide by 25% over the next two years? I mean, is that a mandate for our collective resources to address this issue? What are we going to do? And we're moving in that direction. We're convening an interagency council that will address specifically those issues so that we can be more effective with the resources that we do have, given that we've got a declining budget, given that resources are limited. And we're also partnering with the philanthropic community to make sure that we are 
strategically aligning those investments. So a lot of our CBOs and city agencies get funding from foundations and individual donors and uh, other you know, financial institutions, and our intentions are to consolidate and try to align so that we've got some shared vision and priorities about how we're going to spend that total pot of money. All right, so we're talking about squeezing every bit of value out of $60 million. That's, I learned something new just right now. So $60 million is a lot of money. Who's, John, or I, you saw your hand up, one of you. Yeah, and I just, want to that. Go ahead. I just want to go back that the CRN, it, it is a collaborative network, and that's part of, uh, of what we've seen the success in, the coordination and the communication amongst partners. The CRNs isn't a program of its own. It is existing resources coming together. The young lady today, she mentioned UP. UP is a part of our API CRN. Brothers Against Guns is a part of our Bayview Hunters Point CRN. Mission Neighborhood Centers is a part of Mission you know, CRN. So we have taken a fix and looked at those partners that have been strong in what they've been doing and, again, try to coordinate and communicate a little bit better and be able to support one another in the work around violence intervention. Okay. Cheryl, I want you to go ahead. Cheryl? Thank you. Well, I just want to kind of piggyback on something that the youth said, just in terms of it's great that we do all the planning and we get all these different partners involved, but I think we cannot forget the community and we cannot forget the people that we are targeting because sometimes we set agendas and we set policies and it doesn't mean that it's going to work just because we've been educated or we think we've been educated and we're really not educated to what's best for the community. And the problem becomes we set the policies, we set the agendas, we have these meetings and we figure it all out and then we go into the community, we have these programs and nobody comes. And nobody comes because the program is not relevant to the community. They're not interested in it. And I think it's back to what Brother Malik said in terms of being innovative and being creative and thinking outside the box. Because sometimes we have money. Money does not mean that people will come. Opening right. the doors does not mean that people will come. If it's not relevant to them, if it's not something that they're interested in, and if it's not going to take them to the place that they want to be, not the place we want them to right. be, mm -hmm. then it's not going to work. And I feel like, you know, even today we talked to some folks who last year we were fortunate in one of the uh, housing developments to get money from MOCJ to empower the community. Mm -hmm. That program may not have been what we have, may have wanted it to be, but they had youth in there, they had young people off the streets, and it was probably one of the safest summers that community experienced. Right. But to get those people to come here today, they said, no, every time we go with you somewhere and speak, we end up in trouble. So we don't want to go yeah. because we are being identified as um, troublemakers right. or we're being identified as not following the rules. And then they feel like they're being punished for the stand that they take to better their community. So, again, it's great for us to sit here and make policy. But if we're not involving the community, we're going to keep having the same problem. Okay. I'm going to call on you, Tyree, but what, I want to ask Cheryl a question here. Can you, what program were you referring to that apparently was work? It was last summer in the Western Edition that you said had community involvement and worked to quell some of the violence. Is that what I was hearing I think, you talking about? You know, it was called Open Arms. It was a name that the group at that housing development created for themselves. And it may not have been up to the codes or the standards that some of us would have liked to have seen it become, but what I would like to see is us put money into 
the folks who are prepared to go out and outreach and that can engage the community to train them to be at whatever level we think they should be at instead of saying you can't uh, it's great we see that you were able to get 50 kids in here but those 50 kids weren't doing what we wanted them to do and you weren't the type of um, service provider that we wanted so we're going to pull the money from you we're going to quadruple what we gave you give it to an organization and let them run the program and then we wonder why nobody comes. Okay. Mm. So this is good dialogue. And so what I think we're hearing here is what you're saying, and maybe some of your comments are directed towards the mayor's office, I think, right? Or, or not, not necessarily, necessarily directed, to. but there needs to be more openness and communication. That, that's right. why we're here. It's, it's all coming from a good place. Is that what? Okay. It's Wait. what Malik said. I think, all right. I think Tyree wanted to say something, and then we're going to go to Malik, and then I'm going to go on to some of our other panelists. Go ahead, Tyree. Oh, just like everybody's saying, there's always been help out there, but there's no, never been enough help out there. Like, you really have to go take charge. Like, I was in a meeting the other day, and they said, well, why don't you want to talk to them? I, then my grandma told them, well, what you have to do is sit them in a the room, and you make them talk to you, because what you need to do is let your point be heard. And also, maybe if people had that much interest, they should walk around neighborhoods, write down everybody's name, write down everybody's address if they're willing to give it up and ask them what they will be interested in in the summer. Maybe that will help out. But, no, there's never been that because it's never happened to me. But I was on Mission Street, and people came up to me and started handing me condoms and stuff. Like, y'all care about safe sex, but y'all don't care about our lives. Like, mm. that don't really make sense to me. Mm. Mm. Malik, did you want to say something? And then, uh, was it? No, I think okay. brother said just what needs to be said. Okay. Uh, all right, Janelle. <laughs> Janae. Janae, okay. Janae, I'll, I'll get it right by the end of this. Go. Okay. And about the programs that you guys are trying to make, it's not about, like, only what people like to do. Nowadays, it's like where you're from. You can't just go to, like, say if you're from Hunters Point and then you go to Sunnydale. You can't just go walk into a program like, how the hold? They're going to be like, like, where are you from? Like, that's just the reality. I'm just trying to tell you guys the reality of the, the fact. I'm not trying to be ghetto. I'm not trying to bring stuff that you guys don't want to hear. But that's the fact. Like, if you don't like a girl, nowadays they're going to fight. And girls are, like, stopped fighting. You're going to get, like, stabbed. And with Sad. boys, yeah, you're going to get shot. With boys, you can't just go anywhere. Like, you might, you might really, really, really want to do that. You might really want to rap. But I know some boys who, who are from Sunnydale and who would love the, pro, the um, music program that I'm in, but they're not, not going to come to Fillmore all the way to do it and then risk their lives for, like, something that they really, really want to do. And I know that they want to do it, but it's just the areas that you guys put it in. Put it in the suburbs. Where everybody can go to. <laughs> or, uh, or, uh, also, also, there's, uh, there, I noticed how they're building a police station yes. in every project that there is. Why y'all building police stations, but y'all won't build a center for people to go to? All right. Okay. They stopped all the community centers. Right. We're getting some concrete examples here. That's cool. Maya, before, any, did you want to respond anything before I, I go to some questions for uh, Chief Sifferman? No, I think, the, I think the concerns are relevant. I think that there has to be, you know, this is an issue that there needs to be all hands on deck. And we're at a state of crisis on this issue where we can no longer point the fingers. Like, we all have to be held accountable at every level in every sector to have all hands on deck. Because really what we have is the obliteration of a generation of young people. I mean, at the end of the day, 
homicide is the leading cause of death of our young people in San Francisco and the leading cause of death of young people uh, nationwide. And so it's a, it's a huge issue. You know, I like to tell people over the period of time we've been in Iraq, there have been about 4,000 U.S. casualties in, in Iraq. There have been 83,000 homicides in the U.S. So this, this is a problem. This is a problem in our own backyard. And, you know, it, it, we're at a state where we do need the community um, city coordination in, in concert with our philanthropic um, donors to ensure that we are having the maximum impact with the resources that we do have. Now it's in the front yard, right? <laughs> Let me ask you, this seems like maybe a very simple question, but is it, can't we have a, a meeting, call it whatever you want, that maybe your organization, your, your, your office can coordinate among several people here? I mean, is that something that can be done where you know we're talking about community input getting it doing things that are going to work for a particular community so you have buy-in can we do that I, I think there are definitely opportunities to do that and I also think we have to be methodical about how we do it given the scope and size of <clears throat> the problem and also given the so scope and size of the bureaucracy that we're talking about um, because it's easier said than done to do the systems change that are necessary to support the on-the-ground work and we've got to do that incrementally we've got to do that in a way that we have some some clear wins so that people can both at the city level and the community level come together to do the collective work because it's been very fragmented historically and so we've got to create a culture that that does support city community collaboration and that really is the direct direction and vision that we have with our overall violence prevention efforts you know we're, we're starting we have to start somewhere right we have to start somewhere no baby steps okay I want to talk, talk a little bit about some pilot programs that I've heard uh, Chief Sifferman uh, speak about uh, what's this call-in program because I know that not everybody agrees with you on this so I, I want you to talk oh, they don't I, okay. it's the first time right. first time hearing of that I'm, I'm in shock go ahead great Chief? and you know this is uh, first of all thanks for the invitation to take part in the conversation here today as we all know the juvenile probation department has a a very pivotal role in uh, the in addressing, uh, you know, the the results and effects of violence, but also in addressing uh, public safety in both the short term and the long term public safety needs. Certainly, uh, our responsibility to provide uh, a safe uh, place for youngsters who are accused and uh, uh, convicted of uh, committing acts of violence and other delinquency, but we also have the responsibility to initiate change, internal change that facilitates the long-term goals of public safety, to transform lives into uh, the, to include the capacities and the competencies that, uh, that allow youth to resist uh, any of the temptations for further uh, delinquent behavior, but also to expand and in increase their chances of successful uh, transitions into adulthood. So uh, the call-in strategy. We recognize that uh, uh, most of the kids that come into the juvenile hall have had prior involvement in the juvenile hall and have prior bookings. So we recognize that, that there is something within the hall that is not uh, conveying uh, the messages that uh, need to be conveyed. We also believe that long-term transitions are most effective if they are uh, situated and based on community interventions and connections with community programs. And so what we wound up doing is borrowing from a model where uh, in other cities 
uh, and in San Francisco for adults, uh, the, the, the persons who were most at risk of being a subsequent victim or a subsequent perpetrator were called in and surrounded by helpers from the community. And the message was clear to uh, the, uh, the folks that were brought in that the violence has to stop. If it does not stop uh, on, on its own, we will certainly prevent that from occurring through law enforcement. But we're also offering you the opportunity for engagement with services. And so the individuals and the groups were brought in. What we in the, the, the pilot program that we have initiated in the juvenile probation department was to recognize that the youth that are in juvenile hall at any given time are victims and perpetrators. They've both they've been victimized and they've participated in acts of delinquency that we hope that will cause them to learn a lesson and also to learn how to respond and to also to effectively engage in positive behavior on the outside. So what we wound up doing is going to our providers, the providers who we already have a positive relationship with in the community, whether it's through a contract or not, and utilize that relationship by assembling the group and asking them to help plan this with us in this new variation of the call-in strategy. Lonnie Holmes, the director of our community programs division, called in and relied upon our relationships with the community providers and, and asked them to help us plan this. And what we wound up doing was a call-in of the providers and, and we're, that we're focused on the youth who were already there and already needed these, these, inter, these uh, connections and engagements with the service providers. So imagine this, you're sitting in juvenile hall, you're upset about getting caught or getting caught up or getting blamed or, and, and not having enough time with your family, with your defender, with the probation officer, not knowing what's going to happen on the outside, not knowing, but figuring that you might get released at some point. And all of a sudden on a Saturday morning, you're called into a room and you walk into a room and there are 30 folks sitting around a room, all there just for you. All there just for you, offering, opening their doors to you with a, a, a whole wide array of services that might just might be the ingredient that, that you can latch onto and, and connect with upon your release. And so this is what we've, we've had at least three of these sessions on a Saturday where our partners come in and spend a whole morning and into the afternoon with this and we take the, the units by unit into this, into this auditorium for engagement. And then, and then the referral then, the, the probation officers that are, are assigned to each of the youth are then provided with the list of all the agencies that were there was interest expressed on both either, either the youth or the agency. And then we incorporate that into the release plan and uh, for engagement in the community. It's a plan in the works. I noticed one of the areas that you would ask me to comment on whether it's working, whether it's reducing. You know, it's a, it's a work in progress. We, it's too early to tell. But one thing is for sure that we're not relying on the youth to get to the agencies on their own by just pointing them in the direction. We're already making those engagements and we're going to see if this works. Now, when did this start? This started uh, in, in January. And how many? At three sessions. Now we're going to move into a direction where we're going to assemble and call in the agencies, and we're, it's going to be for parents. 
Right. And it's going to be on, on days when there's a heavily uh, visiting days where these services then will be made available for parents and engage the parents. So that's where the effective engagements okay. are going to be. How many youth have been? A part, how many youth have participated so far in these three Saturdays? Well, at any given well, time, yep. at any given time, there's over 100 kids that are in the detention center, and so uh, we we make certain that even, you know, there was some concern about the kids that are going to be in there a long time, and whether or not it's even beneficial for them to be exposed to these programs when there's really little hope because they're not going to be released for a long time. I say. That's, that's short-sighted because the experience of having kids interact with helping adults, whether it's going to be on the short term or the long term, is positive. Rather than sitting in, in, in the unit, you're at least having an opportunity to engage with adults who are there for them. So, so over 350 kids, let's just throw that out. So you're saying that 350 kids actually participated in this call-in? Yes. All Anybody right. there okay. was... Right. was directed to come to this, yes. Well, okay. So the engagement is part of it, but I would think the next question for you then is it's the follow-up, right? Absolutely. It's the follow-up. So how, what, how do we follow up? We've got th how, who's going to follow up on these 300 kids that have been connected to these agencies and resources? Well, it, it's the responsibility of, of the probation officers and the network of, uh, of services that are put into place. Cheryl? So, I mean, and I think it's back to what Maya said earlier, just in terms of coordinating those efforts, because it's 350 for, you know, how many probation officers are we talking about that have to then not just deal with those 350 youth, but also the, for every youth, there's probably a, one service provider that's offered a service, if not two or three. So then the numbers are doubling. So I think, how do we coordinate so that your probation officers don't have to necessarily go to all those different agencies in order order to, you know, make that connection for those youth. I think that's been the issue for some of the service providers on, because, you know, how do I connect with the, the probation officer that's servicing the youth that I can't get to unless I go through the probation officer? So I think it's figuring out how we set up that time where they don't have to really try and hit 350 different service mm -hmm. providers in order to accommodate that youth. Okay. I, you know, I think I may have misled everybody into... 350. There, there may not be 350 different individuals, but each day that we presented this, there were over 100. There may be some of the kids that were there on two occasions. And one thing is for certain that not that, that the engagements are not only based on what services are available or what services are interesting uh, on the part of the youth. It has to be also consistent with what the vision of the case plan is. And that's really the challenging part about this, and this is something that we're, we're, we're working on very closely to make sure that there's that follow-up. One thing is for certain, it's, it's still a little better than it was with uh, the folks being directed and instructed or encouraged to, to, to uh, uh, connect with an agency. And then uh, somehow there may be some that falls off uh, uh, the chart a little bit and there's that connection isn't made. This is something that's very real and uh, and we're, we're really uh, pledged to uh, making certain that this can continue and address the issues that uh, Cheryl addressed. So when will we have some status or s status of how this is working? I mean, why, why, why don't, you, why don't you give us a few more months? Okay. 
and, and how, how will we, I mean, how can we get the results? Seriously, how can we see whether or not this is working? Where, what, where, what, where do we look to? Where, where do the communities look to to see if this is working? To our, hold uh, us accountable. Our uh, Director of Community Programs, Lonnie Holmes, who's here, here this, right, right. this afternoon. All right. D David, uh, David, you, um, uh, you uh, participate in this process, process in a different way. Right, you're kind of an outside agency, which is a kind of a plus in some regards, I would, I, I would imagine. Can you tell us essentially what your center does to kind of further the cause of some of these things we've been talking about, CRN, call-in? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for uh, inviting me to this panel and for all of you for being here today. Uh, yeah, our agency, the Berkeley Center for Criminal Justice, tries to support city and community partners on the ground uh, to help them work together to reduce street violence and a host of other criminal justice issues. So, you know, one of our basic tenets of our organization is that community and law enforcement need to work together to stop the violence. Community can't do it on its own, and law enforcement can't do it on its own. And it's sometimes very difficult for folks who aren't used to working together to come together and work collaboratively. And sometimes, our partners have told us, it is helpful to have an outside agency uh, like us come and help bring people together and kind of serve as a catalyst to support the work of the folks on the ground. Um, the chief talked about the juvenile call-in strategy. We have been involved in a uh, similar strategy for young adults in San Francisco, working very closely with John Torres and the CRN, with community partners in both the Western Edition and the Bayview, with the mayor's office, with the San Francisco Police Department, and other organizations to, uh, as the chief talked about, uh, give a direct uh, message to those most at risk of being the victims or perpetrators of violence, and these are mainly 18 to 24-year-olds that we have been focused on, and uh, these are folks who are out of custody but are on probation and are, were called in uh, to receive the message uh, that the violence must stop, and it's community <laughs> partners and law enforcement partners giving the same message together, with a lot of service providers also in the room to provide services. And um, again, uh, the partnerships are really the key to that. One thing we've seen in the uh, adult call-in strategy is that the Community Response Network and the Probation Department have started working together with young men in the Western Edition in a way they absolutely weren't doing before in terms of co-case management and really coordinating city services and community services to work with these young men. So are you, are you telling us then that um, the call-in uh, program that you're speaking uh, about as it relates to young adults, uh, you've seen a reduction in violence in the Western Edition? Well, again, it's a pilot program, and it's really too early to say definitively. We're from a university, so when we uh, talk about research, it's got to be, you know, everything's got to be proper to really say that there was a, 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 a significant reduction. We do know that violence was down in the Western Edition uh, over the summer. We've already heard people talk about that. Our first call-in was last summer. However, uh, we don't at this point, uh, we can't say that this intervention is what caused it because there were a lot of other uh, terrific things, some of which you've heard about today that were going in in the Western Edition at the same time. As we refine this pilot and we're about to move into the Bayview and into other areas and we're about to begin the similar project in Oakland, uh, we plan to uh, refine the pilot in a way that we can uh, do more in-depth research and uh, say more definitively uh, whether there is a cause and effect between what we're doing and reductions in violence. And are you going to tell us of those results? Who do we call? We Who every, do we call? Yeah, every, you, uh, me. I mean, okay. every... Uh, Alani every, and you. Yes. Um, everything we do, uh, all our information we share um, with, uh, with our partners. So, uh, you know, another example, uh, as a university, we're able to do some in-depth research 
on homicides in San Francisco. So we've done an in-depth study of homicides from 2004 to 2006. Uh, many of you have already heard those results, um, such as the fact of how highly concentrated violence is in the city. It's something all of you know. Uh, anecdotally, you know it because you see it every day, but we were able to come up with the data that showed that 58% of the homicides and shootings occur in just 1.8% of the square miles in San Francisco, which is a pretty amazing statistic and really, again, bears out what everyone here knows and sees day to day, that there are these tiny pockets where there are very high levels of violence in San Francisco. And if we can target the people who are most involved as the perpetrators and or victims of violence, and as the chief said, they're basically the same folks who are shooting each other. Um, if we can target them and have community and law enforcement come together to work with these young people, then we can have, uh, then we can make a difference citywide. All right, uh, Chief, any plans on expanding Colin to those youth out of custody uh, in a way that David was speaking of just now? I think that that's the direction that we would like to take. Our whole emphasis is in the direction of moving probation officers out into the community. And I'd like the notion of making better use of the schools and, and having schools stay open later and have the schools as kind of like the reporting centers or the drop-in centers and having probation officers at these centers. I, I, I think, and so we don't have to call the kids in. They will come in naturally, and I think that's the goal that we see. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I ran this 20 years ago and called in kids that were on intensive probation in Chicago, and we would call them in on a Saturday with their parent, give them a lecture on the rules, have an exam, have uh, programs where the kids would perform. It would have a judge that would come in and address the kids. We would have sessions with their individual probation officers, community service uh, for a, uh, an hour of that day, and then uh, uh, wrap things up with uh, with a, a good meal later on. This this is not anything new in, in the field of juvenile justice. We just want to move it step by step in this direction. What's taking it so long? Uh, I, I think just, staff what, what? and resources, okay. and resources for the community as well as uh, as our department. Okay. I want to move on a little bit because um, we are going to have a dialogue with all of you too uh, soon, but I, I want to talk a little bit now about specifically police participation and I would like to ask um, Lieutenant Ferranda, what do you think it would take to have more gun buybacks in our communities? What would it take to have one more gun buyback in our community to take one gun off the street? Tell us. If I can just say one thing before we go to the gun buyback. I know you're limited for time. I want to commend John Torres on the CRN program. I think he's doing a wonderful job. He does a lot of intervention. A lot of intervention. I'll be quick. I got, I got, please, I got a quick please, story please. for you. When, when this first started, the MCOJ put the police department, specifically the gang task force, in the same room with John Torres, the CRN. And you had to be there to love it because it was like somebody was drawing a line, almost like two gangs. It was police department on one side, CRNs on this side. Correct me if I'm wrong, John. No, you're right. You're right. And, and it was like, what are they going to do? What are they going to say? Who's going to strike first? Who's going to retaliate with the next notion? And after the, the first meeting, we started breaking go out in the hallways and guys start talking to each other and it, it really was really neat to see two groups come together like that again it's not a perfect world CRNs aren't perfect and neither are the police we all know that but I think John's done a great job with the CRNs and I think that
just like we need 300 more police officers in the street. I think he needs more CRM. So the more volunteers he gets and the more input he gets will be fantastic to make the program work better. Thank you. I want to commend them for the hard work again. Thank you, Lieutenant. You know, Lieutenant, thank you for bringing that back up. So I think, you know, maybe it merits a little bit more conversation. We have something that is actually working. You know, one thing that seems to be working that everybody here seems to be agreeing with. So why don't we expand the CRN program? Just expand something that's working. So who here, I'm going to tell, I don't know, who here? I, I don't want to pick on anybody, but who can come up with a solution to expand something that is working? We have people already talking that, all, that are not always on the same page, but agree to disagree sometimes. I, I think, I, uh, I, Chief? I'll throw this out there. I think that uh, that any kind of data th that is able to demonstrate efficacy of programs is the is is the ingredient that's necessary to prompt additional resources to come in. So if we can tie in the success of the RN, uh, CRNs that we all know and we've experienced and we we've seen into data to be able to to demonstrate a reduction of violence then uh, I, I'm, and we can prove it, then I think that that lends itself to expansion. Okay, David, wait, I'm going to get to my, but David, sure. you're talking about data here. So is that something you could help with that maybe we can use to give Maya? Is that something that you can work on with us? Yeah, well, one, one thing that's happening is actually next week, uh, street outreach workers from Oakland, Richmond, and San Francisco will all be coming to Berkeley to talk about best practices and to share uh, the work that they've been doing uh, about what's working. In terms of actual data, again, it is very complicated to prove what is actually calling violence to go up and down because there are so many factors, and it takes uh, tremendous resources to do a very careful study to be really able to pinpoint what the CRN is doing versus what more police are doing versus what... on it on how we can go about doing it, but there isn't a clear link that this is, let's say, the strategy. And, and so I think it, it's a work in progress. I think that definitely I'm appreciative of David and others that also are very conscious of, you know, trying to come up with the data measures so that we can then say, you know, definitively, look, there is, and this is what this plays in the whole uh, scheme of, of violence reduction. So. Lieutenant, I think you wanted to say something. And if I could just get in for one more second. I mean, I'm, I, I just want to be clear. It's not impossible to do. It's just difficult, and it takes time and resources. Uh, we certainly would be more than happy if we were had the available resources to partner with folks in the city to do an in-depth study of the CRNs. Um, but um, it's 
It's a serious undertaking. That's all I'm saying. You know, I followed up that because that was one of the chief's suggestion here. But you know what? Let's 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 take it even further. Let me just say this. You know, I guess we all know it really isn't rocket science, right? So maybe we don't need the data to just keep moving forward. I don't know. Is there somebody, Lieutenant? I can specifically think of instances where CRNs have helped on the street. Um, they've gotten there before we have, and they defuse retaliatory attacks. They've uh, been able to put aside the emotions that always comes from the next level. Uh, you can call me Ernie, too. I think okay. nobody oh, else has right. a title. You I don't did. call him chief. But anyways, getting back to the gun buyback program, I want to hit on that. I, I think... We're right in line with everybody else, correct me if I'm wrong, Mia, on gun buyback programs. We're doing exactly the amount of gun buyback programs any other major city department is doing. We could use more. I think if you were to talk about gun violence in the city, it, it's, it's almost shameful. I, in 2006, we took 136 guns off the street. This is just gang-related guns. 2007, we took 248 off the street. And already in 2008, we took 96. Now, a lot of people in the police department are high-fiving like, hey, we took a lot of guns off the street. Hooray, hurrah. But to me, I'm saying, where are those guns coming from? You know, let's get together and figure out where are these guns coming from? Because if the numbers are becoming so high, there's, there's, if we're, we're quadrupling every year the amount of guns that people have on the street, right. then we better find out where they're coming from, and we, and we better be able to work with other agencies and other people to stop these guns. The gun buyback program is a great program because what it does, it cuts down a lot on domestic violence issues because guns are taken from the street from either parents that have died or that are left behind in the house. You can no longer sell a gun in the city without a, a permit because then it becomes a misdemeanor or a felony, depending on what kind of gun you're selling. So people are selling us guns that they can't sell otherwise. Now, I'm not saying it's not a bad program because a lot of burglaries occur where guns are taken and used illegally. We like to have more gun buy pro buyback programs. I'm sorry for the miswords there. We need, uh, again, it's always, it always comes back to resources, time, capabilities, and we need your help to get out there in the community and, and, and tell people, give those guns in. You know, if you see a gun in, in a house that you don't think belongs there, call us. We'll make the report. I guarantee we will make the report with no questions asked. It's all part of our gun buyback program. We just took an AK-47, a Mac 11 full auto out of the Sunnydale on a call-in, report made. We bought that gun and nothing was asked. I'd rather have that happen than be out there at night hearing blah, 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 blah and you people hearing that. So the gun buy program is a good program, but it's not the absolute program. The other, the other thing I want, to, I want to stress, we were talking about the call-in. We've identified 44 juveniles, working Mr. Silverman and his probationers, constantly that are at-risk juveniles, either to become victims or to become suspects. And the sad part about that is nine out of those first 11 juveniles have either been shot or killed. So with the target with the call-in is really working because we're getting out with Mr. Silverman now and we're doing bed checks. And it works great. Uh, we, we, we go out with his probation officers, and we, and we knock on a door. Where's your son? I don't know. Well, I know where he's at. He's at Laguna Netty right now. He's hanging out, he's hanging out at night in a high-impact area where he shouldn't be. Oh, darn. So we, we bring him. We bring him home. And we do that two or three times. And about the fourth time, that kid's at home. So it's, it's working great with his probation officers. I, I, I just think that um, gun violence is really up, and, and we have to get the guns off the street. The biggest problem we have with guns is that, our neighboring states have no control over guns. You can cross the border in Nevada, buy a gun, bring it back. All you need is an ID, saying you're a resident there in a hotel for one day and the gun comes in. But if we don't get the support of the community to let us know where those guns are with no questions asked, hot tip lines you can call. We have police officers come out and do reports. I'm sorry I'm taking so long. 
and and um, and 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 we'll be glad. We're glad to do more gun buy programs, but it won't work without your help in getting it out in the community. I've got more questions for you, though. But I think I want to ask something. Mike, did you want to say something before? I, I, I think I. Well, we've moved on in the discussion, so it, it, it was only in regard to the expansion yeah. of the CRN. So almost two years ago now, right, John, the CRN was significantly expanded, and it, there was a supplemental ad back that, that expanded the CRN from the mission where it was originally cultivated and incubated to the Bayview and to Western Edition. Then there was a citywide um, uh, Asian Pacific Islander CRN that was created, and now they're in the planning stages of a CRN in Visitation Valley. So while it's been pretty tried and tested in the mission, it's still relatively new in our other neighborhoods. Um, there are, they are different in some regards in their texture complexion approach. There's some fundamental similarities, but I think we're still in an incubation stage in several of our other um, uh, CRNs. And I think that there is ongoing discussion about evaluating um, the impact that, that those CRNs are having in those neighborhoods. So I think that folks do have their eyes on the CRN. The CRN is a tremendous asset to the city in terms of our outreach efforts and in terms of connecting with those people who are indeed the most at risk of being victims and perpetrators. We support the work and we, we definitely want to be supporting those things that are having a maximum impact on this issue. Okay, you're a senior, senior aide advisor to Mayor Gavin Newsom. So can I ask you just to, when you go back and advise him, tell him that we all think the CRN program apparently is working pretty well and, and maybe put a plug in to, to expand, expand that, that program. Well, I think that there are already ongoing conversations about the CRN. So what, what we are committed to doing out of MOCJ is to really coordinating all of our, all of our outreach efforts and really trying to uh, make sure that they are all working in concert because we're making a significant investment in not only the CRN but several other outreach efforts okay. as well. It, okay. I wanna, I, Cheryl, I think, did you want to comment on the bed, bed checks? I, I, I just, maybe bed checks that, that uh, Ernie here was talking about in the call -in. I thought you had, no? Okay. Sherelle, I've yeah. been ignoring you, it's, uh, you think, huh? but not really. Anything you'd like to add before uh, we move on here? What do you no. think? No? No? <laughs> you enjoying you know, yourself? I did just uh, want to say, because you said yeah. something earlier, and I wanted to be really clear yeah. that the partnership that we had with MOCJ was innovative and creative, and that it wasn't an attack on the mayor's office no. or anyone yeah. else, but that it is you know, it's policy and it's how things evolve and grow. And I think that the challenge is for us to figure out how when something works and another part of it doesn't, how do we make it work together? And I think that's part of what, as we kind of move on, realizing that we need to stay connected to the community to some piece, to some component, because they know how to get other community members in in ways that we don't. And then how do we then begin to educate and um, begin to help them be developed into the leaders that we want them to be. Lieutenant Ernie, now that we're on first name. Uh, <laughs> it's a joke. Uh, when was the last gun buyback we had here? Approximately uh, two and a half months ago. Okay. And how many more are we going to have in the future? Do you know? I know of one that's starting to be put on the, on the panel right now that's starting to be talked about in the office of uh, but again, it's, it's all a matter of putting, putting all the resources together and, and getting the funds together to buy the guns back. Because we do bring in an enormous amount of guns. I think the last one was 128, including five assault rifles, um, 
a lot of revolvers, a lot of automatic weapons. So, but it's just a matter of getting all, all the people back together again and doing it. What people are you talking about? Who has to come together? Who do you need to make M it happen? MCOJ again? is usually the spearhead. And again, I'm not, you know, we, do, yeah. we work great with MCOJ. I'm not, I'm not criticizing anybody. And, it's, and again, it's a resource problem in the police department designating officers to go out there and do all the leg work and the foot work. And, and so it's just a matter of getting everybody together to do it. You know, and getting help in the community, putting the word out there. Because the word doesn't get out there in the form of leaflets, press, word of mouth. It, it's, it's not effective at all because nobody brings the guns in because nobody knows about it. You know, I always call San Francisco a, a village, not a city because it's so small. I mean, people transverse so easily. You know, and that's why one crime that occurs in the Bayview is not unique to the Western Edition. East San Jose and West San Jose, gun violence happens in East San Jose. West San Jose doesn't even know about it. But here, one, one shooting, no matter where it is, affects everybody in this room one way or another, you know, and, and I hate to talk statistics because it's a statistic of one. One crime, one victim affects you, you, and it doesn't matter who it is, but uh, again, it's just get everybody together and, and working on it. Why is it so hard to get everybody together? It, it Why really can't you is. just do it? Uh, just prioritizing it, really. Okay. Well, let's make it a priority. Can, can I just say, and you know, Maya ahead, mentioned Cheryl. earlier the community conveners, and I think that it is beginning to happen, and I don't want to negate that those efforts are being made from the mayor's office and DCYF and other places. But I think that at some point in time, and I think John Asaki mentioned it earlier, just checking the egos at the door and not power tripping and really being able to get people to come together for the betterment of the community and not necessarily for their agency or their department right. or their organization. My, go ahead, Maya, please. Well, I think Cheryl brings up a good point because what I like to tell people in this work is we have the very difficult task of balancing the public's expectation for results today. So <laughs> violence is off the hook. Folks want to see that it's mitigated today. They don't want to hear about the long-term strategies we've got to put in place to make sure that this is not popping up at the end of the summer, next year, the year after that. And it requires us to front load some investment and some resources. But we've got to acknowledge that we've got turf issues, and they're just not on the block. They're not right. at Sunnydale. They're not in the Western Edition. They're among CBOs, and they're within city agencies. And until we, like Cheryl said, check the eagles at the door, because the eagles are um, costing us the lives of our young people. Right. Right. At the end of the day, we know what we need to do, and we need to do it differently. And it requires us to have that will among one another as decision makers and as practitioners in this work to come together to say enough is enough. Mm -hmm. Let me just ask um, you, uh, another question, Maya. Any, because I'm on this gun buyback, as you know here. <laughs> any, anything, any sense in, in your um, um, in, in your organization of any plans? Uh, for any future uh, coordination efforts to have more gun buybacks? There are discussions always about the gun buyback um, program, in part because we know that we've got to deal with the issue of access to firearms. Um, but while I think those that particular uh, program is important to, to try and get guns immediately off the street, I think we need to go back to Ernie's earlier point, and that is to deal with the availability of guns on the front end. What are we doing about the overwhelming access that our young people have to these weapons. The gun buyback is just one of many strategies that we need to do around gun accessibility. Uh, and one of the challenges that we have with the gun buyback program is attracting guns from the demographic that's using them to kill one another because that typically is not who we're getting the weapons from. Mm -hmm. The reality is it's not the 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds who are bringing the guns to us. And 
And the reason being, when we talk to the young people and we say, why, why didn't you show up to the gun buyback program? Well, even if I'm giving you a $250 voucher for your gun, even if the gun only cost $150, the value of safety that they place on that weapon outweighs the $250 voucher. And so we've got to get a little bit more, I think, innovative in our approach to dealing with the accessibility of guns, which is a really difficult uh, thing for, I think, us not only as a city but as a state and a nation to really grapple with the manufacturing of automatic weapons. We do. But, you know, okay, how are we going to – we can only control what's on our plate. And what I hear often is that that's just one strategy. That's just one program. We have to be creative. We have to do this. But why don't we take what we're doing and expand what we're doing? Because my next question for any one of you is that what do you plan to do about the accessibility? What can we? Ultimately, you know, uh, the more and more uh, youth don't have uh, the ability to either call themselves getting a job or graduate out of high school. You got more uh, insecurity with their personal selves. And then, of course, there's already, they've already grown up with issues in their families. So, you know, the ultimate thing is, you know, we all have one part to play. We can't play all the parts. And as long as we all come together, then we can do the big, the big work in itself. I think the ultimate thing, like the sister said here on the end, is that uh, us coming together is what really is going to show the difference with the youth that we're working. Uh, we'll be able to get these guns off the street on one hand, but we do know that they will be back, not by the choice of the youth. You see? I'd also just like to say that Mayor Newsom has really, I think, tried to take a proactive approach in dealing with the accessibility of firearms. So I think within the last few years, we've enacted legislation that bans the uh, gun shows at the Cow Palace and on public property. We've tried to minimize um, the availability that folks have to purchase new, new firearm. Um, we really are limited by state and federal law, in all due honesty. I mean, when we look at what it is that we could proactively do as a city, our hands in many ways are bound by state and federal law. So we've taken really creative approaches and had to defend these in, in the courts to really try to uh, limit the accessibility um, that our young people have to firearms. <coughs> and we've got more work to do, no doubt about it. So, uh, Ernie? I, I think one of the most lines, damaging lines that I ever heard was... Uh, I don't know if Deputy Chief Cashman used this morning, if he was here today. Was he here today, this morning? But mm -hmm. one of the lines that, that one of you told us in one of our gun arrests was that he's more scared of getting caught without a gun on the street than with a gun by the police. And that's a pretty scary mm -hmm. analogy if, if you think about it, because they'd rather get caught by us with a gun than be caught without one on the corner. And if we're talking about gun buyback, I think we should have gun give-ins. I mean, if any of you know anybody has a gun, just have them turn it in. Bring it to a station. Nobody's going to ask you any questions. I mean, it's a direct directing the general orders that we will accept any gun, no questions asked, and it will be booked in as found property. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, you can't rely on all of us right. to bring in all the guns. It's up to you. You know brothers and sisters and, and people that probably have guns that should have them illegally. Make the call. We have the hotlines. We, we have the anonymous tip lines. We have to get them off the street. I mean, we talk about the injunctions. Me and Mr. Adachi went at the injunctions a little bit. I, I often wonder what's going to happen because now that we've done all this, all this enforcement, all this CBO stuff, the next wave that's coming is the next wave of kids, and are we protecting them because they're just going to fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. I, I've been doing gang work for 15 years now, and it becomes pretty embarrassing to me as a, as a department, as an agency, as a city sitting right here next to me. 
that we are arresting grandsons and grandkids of, of gang members of two generations ago. That's a shame that we're doing that. So we all have to work together and stop that trend because it's, it's getting worse and worse. Because it's not anymore like if me and Mr. Adachi are out and we, and we get in a, in, a, in a beef on the street and we have a basketball game the next day, we go have pizza and, and play Little League and let's have some fun. Now it's like, here we go. You're done. You know, and we better stop that trend because it's there. You know, and we need all of you to help. You know? All right. Um, Cheryl. Well, no, I was just going to ask... Um, Sherelle, you know, her insight or her viewpoints on um, youth with guns and whether the gun buyback yes. would work or whether, you know, if she has friends that she knows has guns, would she actually take their gun and turn it in? Good. Sherelle, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up, Cheryl. Cheryl? Uh, well, I know people with guns, and I wouldn't because... I don't know. I just don't want to get involved with all of that. I just leave them alone with their gun. I don't get involved. So, I mean, yeah. I say that to say the, the idea that if someone's carrying a gun, for the most part, we might consider them dangerous and not want to take their gun away from them. So what are the other, you know, this idea that because if they got that one, they can get another one. And are they going to be upset with me because I took their gun and turned it in? And I think the thing, too, we have to consider, too, is that, uh, you know, this is going to be a long process. It's not a one-stop drop, you know. Uh, me, if I'm, a, if I'm racketeering and I know I can get some extra money, right, I'm going to take a couple of guns I don't use, go get some extra money, keep the other ones. So the, all the, the, the major thing that we have to look at is, again, we got prevention. We got so many different levels of things that we have to uh, use. We can't just say, okay, drop your gun off, you're cool now. You know, and, and that's not a shot at the program. We do need that program. But we do need these other programs that are coming in and dealing with the parents, dealing with the families. You know, like we just said, we just... First grader at Cleveland, I worked at Cleveland, you know? First grader at Cleveland, I know how. He probably found the gun, seen the gun, picked it up, stuffed in his bag, and went on out to school. Nobody knew until it went on the news, you know? Sherelle, you wanted to chime in here? Well, all my friends that have guns, it's because it's for protection, because they beef from what another said, and they don't want to be caught without a gun, and they don't want to get shot, and if you're without a gun, then it's more of a chance of you getting hurt yourself. So I guess the question is, how do we make people begin to feel safe in our communities? I think that the issue isn't, you know, how do we get the guns back, but how do we get people to feel like they don't need a gun in order to feel mm -hmm. safe in their neighborhood? Well, we do got video games. Uh, there you go, Josh. <laughs> we got right. video games that allow them to uh, kind of placate the attitude of it. Right. We got the we got the movies that makes billions of dollars off of uh, this attitude that has been created in our community. So uh, the, the major thing is, is that, yes, we must do this, but we also got to look at all of the components and not just the gun itself or the child carrying the gun. I was exactly, I was going to follow up on, on Cheryl's thing as yeah, well as right, right, right. that it is about I think behavior change. Um, during lunch, I had I was having a brief conversation with 
one of the guys that I grew up with, and he was talking about the days when there was an abundance of, of youth programs, and there wasn't just X amount of slots, but everybody could, you know, count on them, and as reductions in that took place, you know, he said one simple thing that, again, sparked this, was, which was, man, if I couldn't get that, that summer job that I was uh, anticipating, well, I knew I was going to be robbing folks that, yeah. you know, that summer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was... Not to date myself, but, you know, that was a couple of years back. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it just has gradually. Hey, hey, hey. Come on. Lonnie's cell phone is. No. no. Right, yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, no, but, you know, it is. It has, you know, things have gotten other reductions, other cuts and all that. And so it all impacts. It's not just the actual part of getting the gun off the street, but right. that behavior change, which is a longer term investment. You know, and is, are we prepared to make okay. those investments? So, you know, I think what we're going to do now in keeping... Uh, true to what we had said earlier is that we wanted to engage our audience. So we're going to ask you if you have any questions of any of our panelists, staying focused on making changes that we have control over to deal with guns and violence in our community, what's working, what's not. Uh, Hi, my name is Santiago, and I work with a lot of families in supportive housing throughout the city. But my interest is like, last few summers things were happening in Treasure Island and I'm always thinking about how our population or the population I work with are sort of like lost out there out there in the island so what are happening in terms from the city all the way down to panel of prevention intervention out there in the island they do have like the traditional boys club YMCA all that, but I'm not hearing anything what, you're, what I'm hearing today. Who'd like to answer that question here? Is there anybody? You know, I'm, has... I'm John Torres. I want to talk uh, okay. to you later. Yeah. Well, there, I will just say, again, piggybacking on things that Maya mentioned earlier, <laughs> that DCYF has funded these 20 community conveners, and the community conveners are meeting with the mayor's office, and they're meeting with um, the service providers to really try and develop programming that's relevant to the community that they're in. And Treasure Island does have a community convener, so I would say find out who's doing that and really have them focus the meetings towards what's going to happen this summer and what are we doing to prepare for it. How does he find out? Where do we find out? Well, DCYF website, the community conveners are listed, but I do know that it's tie-dye that's the convener. Um, I just want to thank all the panelists uh, that came out today, of course, and everybody that really sponsored this event. You know, it's a very interesting um, thing that we're dealing with here when we're talking about our young people and where it has to start. And, of course, you know, we are living in a very, very um, tense time globally, you know, with our young people really needing to be prepared and in their preparation to be able to make a contribution, you know, with our society here in the United States and really abroad. Uh, The question, as well as the concerns that I really have, have to do, I think, the gentleman in the orange and then the other young lady, Jana or Janelle, whatever her name was, and also this is for the mayor's uh, liaison, his aide. What kinds of, we're talking about mentorship, we're talking about leadership programs, and that seems to really be what 
I've been listening to for the last going on seven hours that really needs to happen. And I attend a lot of other events, too. And it seems to be the fundamental through line here with our kids, the idleness of not having enough to do uh, with their time. Um, it's one thing, as it has been discussed here, you know, they go to school, they learn the basics. But is the basics really even keeping in step, you know, technology-wise, science-wise, and all kinds of other areas? to that of which they need to be prepared for. So I'd like to know what kind of other leadership and mentorships programs that are going to be available to these young kids. We heard about the sports thing, uh, but I didn't hear any kinds of things that are maybe even coming out of Silicon Valley, working with corporations like Yahoo, working with corporations like Google that gives memberships, I mean, uh, mentorships to our kids, uh, keeping them out of trouble. I haven't heard anything in working with the media, you know, whether it's the Chronicle or whether it's TV or whether it's radio. And I keep hearing also the arts being a very prevalent uh, through line. Uh, to really, you know, uh, doing something with the idleness of our kids. So, so let me ask you, so is the, basically the question is what partnerships are we making with the private sector? Exactly. Silicon Valley, that's exactly. great. That's exactly. Oh, right and now. even in the media, the TV, everything that okay. needs to happen here. Uh, at the Bayview Safe Haven, we have a current project going on with Pixar and the uh, San Francisco Cartoon Art Museum. Uh, that's going to be going on throughout this summer as well. Uh, we also have another project in which I and another uh, participant, another uh, participant in my program, will be uh, taking a, a flight to Colorado to the uh, Colorado Film Festival, where he won a, um, a prize for his film that he did on his brother that got killed in Hunters Point. Uh, I think. Uh, I also will be running a Rites of Passage uh, program in Hunters Point at the Bayview uh, Gym there at Jolie. And so uh, my, our number, my office number is 415-824-4098. And you can give me a call and I can give you a whole slew of more activities that we have for the summer. Cheryl. I, I just wanted to say, you know, we had been in conversation with um, Maya and MOCJ and DCYF, and we are actually planning a pilot program for working with the CRN as well to identify 10 of probably what would be the most at risk that wouldn't be employable, that wouldn't be able to go in and get a job, that aren't going to be in school. And we're trying to develop an eight-week program where Mondays would be career explorations, where they are going to go to um, radio stations and they are going to visit art museums and they are going to visit Bank of America and other places like that. Tuesday is going to be motivational speaking and people are going to come in and talk to them about the career paths that they've chosen and how they ended up where they are. Fridays are going to be kind of field trip days. And then also in there is a time to discuss attitude and hygiene. You know, how do you go in and how do you present yourself, not just on the outside, but also on the inside so that people do want to engage with you. So that's something that we're trying to work on with um, the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice as well as DCYF and the CRN. 
Maya. So there are a couple of uh, youth empowerment uh, efforts and initiatives underway in the city. DCYF has an entire fund dedicated to youth empowerment, and the whole goal of that fund, which John may know more about the details, is to really empower youth, um, employ youth to be uh, uh, the, the the victors of their own right. destiny. And really, it's a it's a really innovative fund that actually lets youth identify projects and and programs to work on right. um, to really be the leaders uh, in terms of the allocation of resources. They they dole out grants through and in partnership with Chalk. Um, so the Youth Empowerment Fund is a is a really exciting way that San Francisco is engaging its young people. Um, we also have uh, one of the few youth commissions in the country, uh, and the youth commission works on a variety of policy issues uh, that help inform the mayor and the board of supervisors on policy related specifically to young people. The YMCA has launched a really impressive initiative called Big Brother Big Sisters, which is a mentoring program, and it's sponsored in partnership with Nick Cannon um, from Nickelodeon, and who was the star of the Drumline movie. He's got an entire campaign called Stop Hating, where he's really trying to get the message of uh, stop the hate, you know, haterism and that sort of thing kind of embedded in cities and communities around California. Uh, in terms of the digital media, I think you raise a really important uh, point about connecting with Silicon Valley as a, re as a resource. We've got a lot of digital, uh, youth-led digital media companies here in San Francisco. We magic really closely with. Um, you've got New America Media, uh, you've got Youth Outlook, you've got um, Baycat and Bayback, and each of those organizations um, is engaged right now in some really innovative work, particularly with um, probationers um, that are both under 18 and then 18 to 24 specific. So I think that uh, people recognize the value of digital media in the age of MySpace and Facebook. We've got to connect with our young people where they are, and we've got to be able to explore those job opportunities in sectors that we haven't traditionally thought of um, directing our young people. So we are doing that, and we are in partnership around some di digital media uh, work. I wanted to say, excuse me, I said Be Magic. I meant to say Baycat. Baycat is actually a uh, digital media uh, project where they have youth-led things of that sort. And we at the Bayview Hunters Point family, we work with the CRN, and uh, we're currently trying to pull some things together with Baycat. Baycat is a good place in terms of uh, the new technology era and getting our youth tied into that. I, I'd like to engage our, uh, the private sector in discussions about how to uh, really push the limits on, and, and expand our horizons on the use of technology to keep in touch with, with our kids. I, I would love to put a cell phone in the hands of every kid that's on probation. While I know that the probation officer would not be in the favorite five, I think maybe we, we could be just number six and be on speed dial and that we would have the kids on speed dial. They are very, very successful in creating and enhancing their relationships with their network. They don't make a move without letting everybody know what they're doing, where they are, what they're thinking of, what's going to happen next. Unfortunately, that often turns into you know, situations where a number of kids get involved and hooked up and, uh, for one beef and, and six or seven are, are involved and pinched in the same uh, episode. But I think that we should look for ways, and uh, our partners in, in, the, uh, you know, in the telecommunications, to, to look for ways of maybe even some of the disposable phones, phones that just have the number 
that, that exists and connects with the, the service providers and, and with us. So I, I, I'd like to explore that with the private sector. Will you, will you commit to that? Sure. Okay. Sure. I, I already had uh, a conversation uh, two years ago when I first arrived right. with someone from uh, a representative. I won't mention the name of the carrier, but uh, it was almost like I was uh, uh, talking from Mars. But uh, I'll continue to pursue this. Next question. Thank you. Next question. Uh, yes, actually I had a quick comment and then a question. I wanted to follow up on what the gentleman over there said that about communities that aren't quite in, outside of the regular realm of what we think of as CRNs. The TL, man, we really need some <laughs> CRN over there because I just want to say that like within the last couple of years, having worked there has really changed. First off, we have Honduran youth that are trafficked in, then we have a zillion other like youth cultures happening there from Oakland, from all kinds of youth cultures, and also we have a huge Latino population that's moved there within the last five years, I think is what the Chronicle said. Um, and this is really big because most of those kids are really young, but in about three to six years, they're going to be teenagers. And we have been having our community convening meetings, but all of us all agree that none of us have the structure to do gang violence prevention. And we work with the parents, so we don't want that. And we're not gonna play the ego thing. We just want someone to come in and like really support the young men and women who are getting gang affiliated and even just getting involved to have job opportunity because jobs is the number one thing we would love in the TL for young people. And then just have opportunity in general and just acknowledge there are a couple communities out there. So that's let's, my comment. Okay, and that's actually a question then, right? Uh, well, I don't know if people could yeah. respond to that. I had a question actually okay. about immigrant yeah. youth, but yes. Um, I've actually talked, uh, I came out to one of the convener meetings at that time with Kyle Peterson from MOCJ to uh, see about having a discussion. And definitely, I mean, I agree, the, the need is out there. One of the things that with the CRN structure, it is building with existing resources. So, you know, there has to be uh, either some agencies that are going to have to step up and figure that out to work as a collaborative, and that was one of the barriers. I think another barrier is that when we go into these, uh, and it wasn't mentioned before, but with all the different other CRNs, the staff is reflected of the neighborhood. So already there's an existing relationship that, you know, has already transcended generations. And so that's the leverage in working with some of the youth now. 
as you well pointed out, I think the TL hasn't been, I think, a specific, uh, you know, either culture, ethnicity, or whatnot. So it's been always evolving there. And so I don't know that the community ties or, you know, are, are as long or, you know, it definitely presents a barrier for the same way the structures have worked with the other CRNs. But the conversation had sparked up, and by all means, I'm, I'm on board to continue to see what can be a development. Additionally, that's what I want to say with the, with, Wait, with John, the gentleman John, here. John, can you commit to that then? Be yeah. Can you commit to that? Because actually this is a very good example of here of where we can stop the infection, right? Mm -hmm. We right. know it's, it's there, so let's stop it before it becomes a disease and grows. And we all know that. So can you commit? We're all talking, and you, and you have worked with people to make things work, mm -hmm. but this is something which has been raised, and we can start now before that infection I, I, I'm committed to continuing right. yeah, the conversations but and see where we can go with okay, it. Okay, you had a qu you had another question and then we'll move on. Yes, go ahead. we'd uh, love to hear commitments from other folks too. <laughs> all here. right. That would be great. Um, and um, just to put it out there real quickly, it's like we are talking mostly about in immigrants and a lot of the folks we work with are, okay, potentially possibly undocumented. And the big thing that we're seeing is that people just, because of the raids that are happening right now, people do not trust the police. And especially our young folks, we had a young person who was beaten up by a police officer in the Tenderloin and was said racial and immigration immigrated related epithets while this process was happening. And so I'm putting it out there that we're hoping that in the future the police department can really think about how the immigration raids and how even within the police officers there's a thought process that's going on that is not pro-immigrant and how young immigrants, especially undocumented youth, are afraid for their safety and aren't coming forward to the police. Well, so I'd like to just from the mayor's office just kind of address some of the issues on our um, undocumented youth here in San Francisco. Um, San Francisco is a sanctuary city. It's really important to the mayor that we protect all of the people that are here in San Francisco regardless of their immigration status. Um, the police and you know the ICE raids that have recently happened it happened and that have been ongoing. The mayor's been in discussion with the feds on uh, minimizing that impact here in San Francisco. <laughs> We're not notified when the raids happen. The police department has no information about the raids. They are not working in cooperation with local police, and so it's really we are trying to work. Uh, in the aftermath of these these raids when we're when it's unknown to us through the CRN and through other apparatuses to provide services to uh, families and individuals who are impacted by the raids. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, from the juvenile justice and criminal justice perspective, given that San Francisco is a sanctuary city, we do prioritize services for monolingual youth and undocumented youth, and that is a priority for the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. And can I just piggyback on that and say just in terms of um, leveraging existing resources because you're saying you're not ready to do um, the work that's uh, around violence prevention. The city, as Maya has already pointed out, funds a lot of programming and a lot of the programs are not to capacity. I would say try to find out who's actually being funded to do some of the support work that you need and ask them to come over because there's a lot of money that's already being put out there that's being under, underutilized and I would say try to figure out where those dollars are going and have those people come in at a, no cost to you. Right. Well, let's connect afterwards because I may be able to link with 
you yeah. know, on some resources, some follow-up stuff. So, so the city's aware of that, and the city is working between the various agencies and with law enforcement to really identify where those young people are, because it's of, of grave concern to all of us as well. Next question. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Kwanzaa Morton, and um, I, I actually work. I work with the probation department, juvenile probation department. I'm also, uh, you know. Uh, community member, right. uh, resident of San Francisco. Uh, we talk about community re re response networks. We talk about all of the people working together. Um, you know, I think about uh, in the in the good book uh, about our people humbling ourselves and and being able to just leave our attitudes at the door. So when I think about that, I'm also a, a man of God. So I, I I have to ask this about where is the faith communities. In these talks, in these discussions, are there any examples of the faith communities uh, being involved in these uh, discussions? So can I just, um, I just want to kind of keep it real. I, I can say personally that I have outreach to all of the different faith-based organizations. And I have to say that, in all honesty, the faith-based organizations are often the hardest to engage. And I, for me, that's an issue. And it's the other issue is that a lot of times for certain communities, when you mention that you're going to bring the faith-based community in, they get upset because they feel like the faith-based community shows up either when um, the cameras are there and they mm -hmm. kind of take over or when they're, the mayor's office is there and they can push an agenda. So I, I would love any support that anyone can offer. And I say that as you know, a person who's very active in the church, whose husband pastors a church, and that doesn't give me really much leverage in terms of getting people to show up at something when there's not a crisis. Like right. David, uh, please, let's, uh, David. Sure. Um, you know, I agree basically with what Cheryl said uh, on violence issues. It is very difficult to get a lot of members of the faith community to come to the table in San Francisco, unlike in Oakland, where there's an organization, OCO, Oakland Community right. Organizations, which is actively, you know, they're about to do an action with thousands of people mm -hmm. to come together about stopping the violence. However, there are some wonderful people in San Francisco in the faith community, uh, Cheryl's husband among them, who uh, are working hard on this issue and for the adult call-in, we have a faith representative at all of our meetings, and actually speaking in the call-in is one of the uh, community members, uh, Reverend Ishmael Birch, who many of you know, and he has been working uh, with other members of the faith community in the Bayview uh, to try to work with young people. So uh, while it is difficult, there definitely are some people doing excellent work in San Francisco, and I agree with Cheryl. Any ideas anyone here has about how we can better engage the faith community uh, in these issues, uh, you know, I think we'd all be all ears on that. I think the best, best way to get them is at the funerals, you know. But, uh, but also uh, another deal is, is also we have to uh, consider, uh, like, if you're not out there, you're not going to meet a lot of the people, you know. I mean, if you're not out there, you're not going to touch bases with a lot of those uh, pastors who used to be in the community, but now they're really trying to do the right thing. So I, I think it's keeping that connection, especially when you go to that funeral, and see them all there, and you pull them to the side and make that connection. I'd like to weigh in on this. The faith-based community has a strong presence in the, the Juvenile Justice Center, and uh, it, it provides programming on uh, a weekly basis uh, in many of the days during the week, and uh, we are, are very appreciative of their, their support and their work together with the Juvenile Probation Department. Can we go? 
I would uh, just really chime in. All right, uh, all right. It's real quick. Um, in the Sierra in the Bayview, there's actually a minister right. that responds with the crisis component. So there is a minister that's on staff that uh, kind of collaborates and tries to also leverage other ministers. Um, what I would say is actually that even beyond just I think uh, faith-based, there's other spiritual practices in the mission mm-hmm. when there have been homicides. The staff as a form of, of de-escalating retaliation is holding circulos that, you know, bring in indigenous practices as well. So I think it's it's a uh, more of a larger scale spirituality kind of component, but I think Kwanzaa hit it right on the head that that's something that you were conscious of trying to bring back because it's definitely an important piece. Next question. Um, uh, I want to, I just have a, um, a question also as to what to, um, Kwanzaa said, um, as far as um, now I'm hearing all this, this faith, what is it called? Faith, faith, uh, faith, 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 faith. Um, I'm also very spiritual. And, and my thing is we all talking about, we talking about politics and all this money and we talking about violence. We talking about guns, but nobody's talking about prayer. Mm-hmm. Nobody's talking about God. And that's all I want to say. Right. Everybody got all these positions, all these high, whatever, but nobody's talking about prayer. Right. We all got different ways we pray. (laughs) Sherelle, did you want to respond to that? I wanted to say something about church or whatever. Because I just recently went to a church called New Providence, and um, the pastor stole money from the church or whatever. So I could see why people... Bring it. (laughs) ...be outside. I mean, don't go to church anymore and stuff like that. Because... Next question. This, do we have this, time for one? Do we have one more time for this, one more question or show? This question is specifically for the young lady. Um, once there's like an act of violence in your community, a homicide. Once you go back to your school, what do you think the resources are? Are they are they good? Are they bad? If they're bad, how can they be improved? Because I think that's very important. It's not just the act of violence, but, you know, kids need to have something to respond, somebody to respond to them. The resources in the school? Yes, in in your schools. Um, Well, for violence, I mean, there's not, well, we have security and stuff like that, but there's no real resources in the school, and there's nobody to turn to. Like, the teachers don't do nothing about it. They'll just send us out of class and stuff like that. And that's basically it. Or they send us straight to juvenile. They don't, yeah. I think we're about. Oh, okay. All right. One more. Who, who's that? Years oh, old, you've okay. waited a long time, okay. so it's okay. <laughs> All right. um, my question, I have several, but I'm not going to cut it short, is that I was one of the providers that went to the uh, probation call-in, and I think it was an excellent program. I took a music um, program up there, and 36 of your people there signed up. And I'd like to hope that you will respond to those people that called in. Great. Mm. Okay. Okay. Uh, And the other question, the other question is on the gang injunctions. I'd like to know when is the last time you've been to Oakdale yourself? (laughs) And I'd like to also know 
When is it possible for a person to get off of a gang injunction? Because people are being separated from their families. Right. And that causes them to live in another turf. And that in itself causes death in some cases. I go to Oakdale almost on a weekly basis, if not every other day. We're up there either, unfortunately, on some type of enforcement action or patrol, because that is one of our hot spots. As far as, as getting off the injunction, there's, a, there's currently an opt-off policy going on with the city attorney. What you have to understand is that the police department did not – we enforced the injunction, but the injunction was put in place by the city attorney's office. And with the help of Mr. Dachi, they are currently in process of doing an opt-off policy. The opt-off policy is a one-day opt-off. So if somebody can go in, into the city attorney's office and opt-off for the, the, the leak and off the injunction, they have to file with the city attorney's office. And then we would reverse the process where we would go in and say, this person is no longer involved, he has been in trouble since such a long period, and then they would get off the injunction. But it has to be done through the city attorney's office. And, and the questions could best be directed to them as far as how to get it done. All right, I, I do. I, we'd love to ask answer. <laughs> other questions. Oh, God, I, I've got this look on your face. I, okay, this is the last one or I'm going to be in big trouble. Okay, well, this woman, and that's it, really. Okay, you can write them down after that. Sherelle, because I'm a therapist at an right. elementary, and it was just two weeks ago I got the first grader from my school transferred to Cleveland, and I was oh. treating him. And the one thing I want to mention that has not been said here is the parents. Like, the CBOs can do something, and the police, but I have worked so hard with that parent, you know, and I work so hard with CBOs and inspectors and, and people services. And I just feel like there's no teeth in this bureaucracy. And there's been no responsibility. Not a single person on that panel has mentioned the word parent. What is a parent responsibility, and how can we make them more accountable? Well, I did um, mention family. And, yeah, and I know. But I'm just saying I needed to put that word parent out there because okay. yeah, I parent. think that we really need to start looking at, you know, and I'm not into legal, I'm into therapizing, you know, and I think yeah. that we need to make more accountability because most of these kids are only reacting you know, it's not just cultural right. or um, economic for jobs. It's, it's wounds. My kid, <clears throat> that kid has severe PTSD, you know. So when, unless we can treat the wounds and heal, which starts with the family unit and the parental, you know, environment, it's not just on the streets of Sunnydale. Yeah. But it's, I think the major thing we have to, to look How are we going to make is, them accountable? Is, is that, you know, yes, uh, the family, what, what makes up a family, parents, children, uh, ultimately, we have to also, you know, deal with our families who have their children who are placed with these um, with, with these acronyms over their head that, that follows them throughout their life and throughout their school and academic lives. The ultimate thing that we have to do is that uh, when working with the child, not only are we working with the families, but we're working with their friends and the places that they go before they even get home. You know, so the ultimate thing is building that family unit. Uh, I haven't had the chance to really speak on strengthening the family. That was actually my thing that I was going to run on, but, you know, life goes on. So the major thing I would say is that uh, we all have a duty, not just to the child, but to the family, because that child comes to a, from a family. And most of the uh, children that we're working with, you know, the families are broken. The homes are broken. 
So, uh, and they've lived through this from years and years. The parents have lived through uh, coming from broken families. So that's a lot to fix in itself. And I do want to say beyond that, my philosophy has kind of been we have to start with the kids because a lot of times the kids are making the decisions on their own and the mm -hmm. kids actually bring the parents. When the programs are working and doing what they're supposed to do, mm -hmm. then when you put on an event, the kid is the one that says, Mom, I need you to go to this because if you don't come, mm -hmm. I can't participate. And it's a lot of the families that we're working with, the parents sometimes are at, at, at a much, as the same loss that the schools and the community is at. And not always sending someone to the system is the, the, it doesn't solve the problem. So I think for me it's been starting with empowering the young people and then the young people then unfortunately a lot of them already are serving as parents. They are parenting their parents and we have to deal with that reality. I mean the reality of it is is that some of these kids are on their own. And going to the parent doesn't necessarily make a difference. So I think we have to deal with the reality of where it is. And if we can get the kids to buy in, then sometimes the kid can be motivated enough to change their own life, or we're actually doing a service for the, the parents. And I don't know, Sherelle, do you want to? Well, me, I've, I just recently started speaking to my dad, and I haven't seen him since I was three years old. And I haven't spoke to my mom in like a month because she doesn't listen to me and she used to abuse me or whatever so I don't have parents hmm. well it sounds like a topic for next year's summit perhaps including some of our parents but for now I'd like to on behalf of our office and thank all of you for being here most of you thank you and when we walk off the stage I think all of us really are committed to start walking some of the talk even if it's just some baby steps that we can make as we leave. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're actually going to, um, this has really been an action-packed um, <laughs> conference, and we're asking that our panelists remain here because we actually have a PowerPoint of all of our action items that have um, been put forth this morning and this afternoon. We're going to go very quickly as a reminder to everyone that this is our call to action. So one of the recommend recommendations was to have direct community canvassing of residents to find out what programs they want. Okay, and we have to start anti-violence and awareness education early with a focus on elementary school kids. Need transportation that meets needs of youth to participate in programming and better coordination of school times and meaning. Have programs that take a different approach than disciplinary action and nurture people's emotional development. Need more co coordination between CBOs, schools, courts, and other agencies for successful outcomes. Currently funding is insufficient for full, for full implementation of programming. Vote for officials and initiatives that will prioritize youth funding. Have a speaking circuit of juvenile advocates to speak at every school. 
SFUSD could invite librarians to come to schools to teach about available resources? Put services in neutral areas so that they can be used by people from a variety of areas. Expand calling programs to the community and schools beyond youth in custody. Expand the CRN program, including into the tenderline. Be able to have data to show success to expand the program. Need more gun buyback programs. Keep people from selling guns illegally or having them stolen. Need to have mentorships with the private sector in useful skills like science, technology, media, and the arts. And all of these materials throughout the day, as well as these recommendations, will be on our website, sfpublicdefender.org. We want to thank everybody for your attendance, your commitment, and your passion. And we thank our panelists. You have really contributed a lot to hopefully preventing violence.